it's a flood of people, talented people who think that they're there and that perhaps they can occasionally have a glitch in the matrix, something that is anomalous like cryptids, UFOs or whatever. If there are, let's say, an infinite number of alternate universes, infinite is a very, very mind-boggling term. But that would mean that some, many, any number have discovered ways to portal to our reality. always trying to get it it's always trying to communicate and it's trying to find again the, that that efficient output and so sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work but well that's the you know there's like um arthur ford was a famous uh medium and in his book one of his books he's got this awesome quote where a spirit is is talking to him and basically says like we can only communicate with you on the level that you can understand. And we wish that the majority of you weren't so stupid. Because if you were if you were more intelligent and more learned and had the uh, a wider vocabulary and a wider understanding of reality, we could communicate so much more. That is really that's a that's an interesting kind of concept because that's actually something that Willie Strieber has talked about as well. The idea that, um, you know, one of the guys that Strieber had on, he had this like wild UFO encounter in the desert, like, like full on like mothership landing, like craziness. Right. And like, if you heard the, the story, it sounds like totally absurd. I mean, it's like, okay, so you encountered a mothership in the desert, like sure. But the guy is a mathematician that worked with NASA and literally did the math on the moon landing for Japan that like saved an international embarrassment. Like they had to call, he had retired and they had to call him back because he was the only one that could do the orbital mathematics to make sure that the, the, the Japanese moon landing worked and um, with their satellite and that if it didn't work, it was going to be this like international, like China beat us thing. Right. And so the weird thing about his UFO sighting was, was that it happened at the exact moment that the, the Japanese satellite, like lunar lander thing landed on the moon. He had, he had like done the math, like moved on, like was on vacation, like returning to his retirement. And he had this massive like mothership encounter in the desert right at the moment when the you know spacecraft that he had helped calculate the orbital trajectories and stuff landed on the moon 
David Metcalf is a researcher of the anomalous, writer, and multimedia specialist, focusing on creativity, culture, and consciousness. He's also editor-in-chief of the Windbridge Research Center's Threshold, Journal of Interdisciplinary Consciousness Studies. David and I discussed his research into the current UFO phenomena and the use of data mining to analyze social media trends regarding the perception of the UFO phenomena, an endeavor which reveals some unexpected patterns and raises questions that need to be answered. Well, and this is this is interesting because one of the things right now I'm tracking the UFO concept in like in the public and I'm doing it really uh, like the shittiest way you possibly can. I'm just using Google Trends, but it gives me enough to comment on it. And one of the interesting things is that um, it seems like UFOs are super huge right now. You know, I mean, like New York Times, blah, 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 all these things talking about UFOs. Um, But if you look at Google Trends on the term UFO, it's actually at a rather low point. And it spiked in the Stevensville case in 2008, I think. No, no, no. Yeah, maybe 2000. I don't know when the Stevensville sighting was. Is that Texas? Wasn't that Texas? Yeah, it was was Stevensville, Texas. Um, So from 2004 to now... UFOs were actually trending down even after the 2017 New York Times piece. When the most recent New York Times piece came out that had, and it, this followed like right after the 60 Minutes thing and this this report's supposed to be coming out and all that, the Google Trends had anticipated that the spike was going to be exponential, right? So like the spike, it started to go back up. But since then, uh, in reality, it hasn't. And it still hasn't reached higher than it was with the Stephenville case. So it's really interesting to see what the perception is for people because these mainstream media outlets are saying that it's real, right? But no one's actually seeing a UFO and there's no UFOs hitting towns where people actually see them or care. And the whole dialogue is over these blurry smears on like a gun camera that no one cares about and it's not very evocative and it's all about the military and the you know nothing that was ever interesting about flying saucers or ufos to anyone is the conversation you know and it shows in the google trends data but what's so fascinating about that is that the media doesn't see that the media sees that the new york times has posted about it and some sock puppet accounts on twitter are yapping about it and some key people that the media thinks are experts are talking about it, um, which is actually a rather small circle that you can see quoted in every single piece, right? And the media is just rehashing the same exact story. Like the story, like from 2017 to now, like the same exact people are saying the same exact things, and it, the media is just rehashing it again and again and again and again. And it doesn't show in the public data that anyone is caring any more about the UFO. So, exactly, you know, it, it's interesting what you're saying about this, the the way that the the data set would look, you know, with these kind of digital egregores. Because right now, it seems like someone is, you know, or some group of people are trying to artificially spike the UFO egregore, and it's not working. <laughs> it's not working very well because they're not actually using anything that anyone cares about, you know. That's so fascinating, man. That's yeah. Cause... I, feel, I feel bad because I'm using Google Trends, and I know that like from like a data analysis thing, like that's not the greatest like yeah. 
nuanced tool, but you know, it gives you an overview to some extent. And because the spikes are so, because the the difference is so drastic, it it's so apparent. I mean, when I did the, I actually, I wrote a blog post, I'll send you the link to it. You can see the, the graph as it was at the time, but the difference was so stark that I didn't even need more nuanced like analysis because it was like this like really rough graph is just it shows such a, a vast difference between what previous spikes have been and what the current one is and what the current one has been and you know the the trend down and if you do like an engram the trend down is even more drastic and if you do the the not from 2004 to now but if you do a like a 12 month or whatever it's trending down like it's actually like the the public interest is trending down so it's just really interesting because that's not the media story the media story is that this is huge everybody cares everybody's super into ufos they're real and this is the greatest thing ever and the reality as shown by the google trends graph is that that is not at all what's happening god damn it that's so fascinating like <laughs> it's like well so and you wonder, like, what does that mean, though? Like, what what agenda is being pushed? What, yeah, why? exactly. Yeah, that's my question. Is like, after I saw that, I was like, <laughs> like, what's going on? And I started to look at it more, you know, because I was like, so I mean, because it was, you know, again, like with the Santa Muerta stuff. Like, I know that the news is is kind of garbage, and like the journal, like journalism today is not the way it used to be. It's like really lazy, and they usually just jump on somebody's blog post and like move it up up the stream, you know. And so that's what I think is that like a group of people have recognized that and they started at like a low level. Well, they started at a high level with the New York Times and then were able to then jump from that and push, you know, what's called UFO Twitter, which is a bunch of like sock puppet accounts and some like enthusiasts who've been like poked and prodded to like encourage this narrative. But, you know, like, I mean, I've been going back for like a year, well, I spent my pandemic time like reading old UFO stuff because I'm just really interested in this like like what's happening like why is this moving Jack Parsons supposedly was watching the application of asphalt when it suddenly struck him that he could potentially use asphalt as a binding agent with potassium perchlorate powder this moment of genius solved the rocket fuel problem and changed the course of human history Once the military saw the potential for Parsons solid rocket fuel, it quickly became the foundation for the development of the Minuteman missile, the Titan rocket, and the space shuttle solid rocket booster. Humanity has been chasing the stars ever since. Well, what you said too is exact about the about the communication networks is really the motif of the second season. This then that's why that question about the idea of roads and paths you know as a in, in a way of they're they're you know paths to initiation but they're really how how information and society has been able to you know the the roman empire only flourished because of its road network because they were able to move information more quickly you know uh in the u.s the proliferation of you know, you know, manifest destiny, but just the road network, and and then once the highway system and the uh, interstate system was created, you know, there was this explosion, you know, of of, of an interchange of of uh, ideas, and and I think people take for granted the fact that roads, in a way, facilitate 
like like you said, you know, that the, the, the there were Viking horns that had Buddhist statues. You know, I just think it's and and you, you map that onto this concept of an information superhighway or that the, these, uh, you know, are you know ARPANET or that those are sort of the modern roads of of communication. This whole idea of Jack Parsons, right, doing all these occult rituals and in the desert and and building up, you know, the JPL labs and and, and really the fact that we were able to go into space, right, is somewhat premised on Jack Parsons' research. Well, he figured out how to uh, solve the conundrum of the fuel to, to build these rockets by adding road asphalt to the formula. And so, and that ties back into the whole Downard thing because Downard's father, James Shelby Downard Sr., was one of the biggest you know, asphalt creators in the Midwest and paved most of the roads in the in the heart of America. And that was James Shelby Downer's father. So it's it's this weird alchemical sort of and you think of the the creation of roads, uh, the macadamizing of roads that really made them possible is alchemical in a really weird way uh, to create asphalt. And, and I just think it, it's it's funny how it ties into to the the jet propulsion and the building of the rockets and in a way those are roads into space right that 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 created that put the satellites up there that allow this internet to exist you know you know it's interesting too if you if you follow that back to the the idea of roads inside right like the inner and the outer the ability to go into space is what allowed the overview effect to happen where the astronauts look down on earth and it completely flipped their paradigm you know and edgar mitchell comes back and starts heavily focusing on uh human potentials and you know a, a concept of uh you know exactly you know again another sort of apocalyptic concept of what he and john white called homo noeticus which was you know not homo sapien but homo noeticus like man the knower right like the the one who who knows and understands being which goes back to sort of the the unification concept that lull had looked for so that's that's interesting like the you know the 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 asphalt plays a plays a part in getting the human body up into space so that the observer can look down and see the earth as it is and you know have this different sort of understanding of of what humanity is My friend and colleague Marco Visconti knows the Jack Parsons story well, and he believes that Parsons was not only influential on the U.S. space program, but also extremely influential on the OTO, even more so than Aleister Crowley. So, um, Jack Parsons is, without doubt, the most influential telemite that ever lived. And I say that um, knowing that I will, I will attract the ire of all the Crowleyites out there, but to me, Jack Parsons is more important than Crowley because um, it's definitely true that you know Parsons did what he did because of Telema, because of Crowley. However, uh, Parsons Parsons brought us to the moon. That's the reality, right? And Parsons is you know in this day and age where you know the, the you know the space race is coming back to the forefront of the news well uh it's because jack parsons went there first um 
in a nutshell, uh, where to start? So Jack Parson was a Marvel, and Marvel was his actual name. He was born John Marvel Whiteside Parsons, and known as known as Jack, obviously. And he he was this. I mean, it's almost like when you read his his, his life story, his biography, you think, I mean, this must be like this not can't be real, right? <laughs> it cannot be real. But he was. He uh, was like this this person that grew up. You know, reading pulp magazines and sci-fi stories, and uh, like pretty much getting the idea of going to the moon or creating a you know creating rocket science, which at the time did not exist, just because he had this de- this need to go to reach for the stars. Okay, um, he was not uh, it was not academically trained, like he he dropped uh, dropped off of academia, uh, and but still he was a chemist by by self so self thought chemist, and through some of his friends, uh, you know, um, that were were part of you know Caltech, eventually they put together what's called like the Suicide Squad, uh, which is a name you know has <laughs> been heard a lot because you know they just were went out in the desert in Arroyo, Arroyo Seco and were trying to just like build build rockets when 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 we, we didn't even have. Uh, like I said, we didn't even have the, even the, the concept of rocket science. It was just fantasy at the time. Uh, if some of you or you know watch like Strange Angel, Strange Angel is this uh, two seasons on CBS. Well, I mean, it wasn't CBS. I don't know if it still is. Um, unfortunately, uh, they got it got cancelled, so we will never see the end of it. But Strange Angel is the, the story that I'm telling you. Um, you know, Hollywood production um, by you know put together by Ridley Scott. So amazing cinematography, and uh, it's very you know it's very um, romanticized. But you you can watch that and get an idea of what it was like to be Jack Parsons. Now the the funny bit that I haven't mentioned yet is that underlying it all there was the the, the magical element. Jack Parsons was a telemite. Jack Parsons was a strong believer in telema and in magic itself. And in fact, Jack Parsons was also member of the only active lodge of the Ordo Templariantis OTO, which was one of the two main uh, orders of telema, still is. Um, in that was active in you know in the 30s and the 40s when you know when Parsons was working on uh, on creating JPL you know the like the the jet propulsion laboratory that eventually you know got us together got us to the moon. Um, he would he would uh, recite the hymn to Pan by Crowley before before he's testing testing his rockets and. Uh, uh, it was as dedicated to, to his magical path as was to building, uh, you know, building, being, building rocket science, pretty much. Now, the final interesting bit to know about Parsons is that um, what is really known in magical circles is for something called the Babylon working. Now, the Babylon working uh, is a magical operation that he, um, he he did to call down the goddess Babylon. Now, he did it with a certain Lafayette Ron Hubbard that went on to become, you know, the founder of Scientology. Uh, there's a very interesting story about how they two came together and how they fell apart uh, because various stories, it's not important to get into it. It's, 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 it's a well-known story. It's not, it's not really important to, to repeat it now, but they were both 
100% into it. They knew, it's not even they believed, like they knew that it was their magic that was actually fueling the the ingenium that would, you know, would put together science to do both, uh, you know, the creation of rockets and, you know, going to the stars and the bringing down of a goddess onto Earth. Um, Recent, recently, uh, Peter Gray of uh, Scarlet Imprint released this is the latest book called The Two Antichrists, and he analyzes both the story of Jack Parsons and, and the story of uh, Ron Hubbard together. And it's really interesting because it, it goes it goes in detail in describing you know uh, the Babylon working, the reception of Liber Forty Nine. And the fact that one thing that is not well known is that on top of after the bubble working, there's also like a, a, an antichrist working. So the idea of using you know both Babylon and the, the concept of the antichrist as uh, heralds of you know the new world, the, the world that will come once we finally humanity finally reaches for the stars. Um, it's really fascinating to understand that. You know, this is how conspiracies theories come together, in fact, because there's always an element of truth. It is true that, you know, that, that, that Parson himself called, called himself like his magical name as Magister Templi, uh, Master of the Temple, was Belarion the Antichrist. It was definitely true that he had this, um, like, this strong, uh, almost, I would say, maybe not satanic, but Luciferian imagery about him and his his own philosophy. But once we understand how you know Lucifer or the Luciferian um, instinct comes through Telema, it's really the Promethean spirit of man that tries to change its you know its slave um, slave like life and try to reach for the stars. It's almost like you know the, the what what brings us to the star. It is this Promethean, Promethean or Luciferian soul or instinct that we have inside and Jack Parson was embodying it 100% his entire life was all about it pretty much another strange element to the life of Jack Parsons relevant to the present mystery is that Peter Lavenda details in his Sinister Forces trilogy that after Parsons lost his security clearance at JPL and was effectively barred from the field of rocketry he used his expertise in explosives and went east spending almost a year in the Cumberland region doing blasting work for mining companies. That's right, Jack Parsons was an explosives expert at various mines in the Cumberland region of Kentucky, Tennessee, and West Virginia. And no doubt he spent time on the Penny Royal. Is it possible he helped blast holes in the earth here in Pulaski County or further east in Elkhorn City? And while in the Cumberland region, what magic did he engage in? Even the suggestion that Parsons could have been in this area, taken into account with Crowley's passage through the same region, belies another strange circuit and a weird occult magnetism that's no doubt somehow connected to the Kentucky Anomaly. And indeed, the Kentucky Anomaly may be the reason why there are so many UFO sightings on the Penny Royal. On the grand cosmic spectrum, the Penny Royal may be lit up like a Christmas tree because of the Kentucky Anomaly. Kentucky really has taken off as one of the giant UFO hotspots, especially in the country, really in the past couple years. Well, really since we started working on Penny Royal, we've been able to 
uncovers so many sightings uh, historically in the area that really were left, you know, untalked about before. And really, I feel like Kentucky's ramping up as one of the best places to go UFO hunting. There's just so much strange phenomena here. And we have so many people that come through the museum and just talk about uh, the strange lights they've seen in the sky in our county or in the next county over. And, you know, there's just so many rich stories here of people that uh, are collecting this as folklore. It, it really feels ingrained more in, in our mountain folklore as as opposed to you know, just writing down a report for a website, it becomes a part of our tradition here in Kentucky. So a lot of times when you're thinking about looking for UFOs or UFO hunting, you think about these western states with giant open skies like Utah and Wyoming and Colorado, New Mexico. But Kentucky is so rich with a history of UFO sightings and alien encounters that have really shaped the understanding today of not just pop culture, but investigators and how they understand the phenomena. Uh, if you take, for example, the Hopkinsville Goblins encounter, that was the very first time that the term little green men was ever used to describe aliens. And that was right here in Hopkinsville, Kentucky in the 50s. And it's kind of unbelievable to think about how synonymous that is now. Or you think about the Mantell incident, or you think about the Stanford incident, which is one of the most well-documented UFO encounters. They're not just UFO encounters, but alien being encounters with the three women that uh, were abducted and went on the ship and everything. It's really phenomenal when you think about just the history that's ingrained with Kentucky and these strange lights in the sky and these strange creatures coming out of nowhere, you know? Kentucky is a hot spot right now for high strangeness, especially UFOs and encounters with non-human entities and intelligences. But why does Kentucky have such a long and storied history with UFO sightings? Every week there are more posts and more reports of objects, orbs, and cylinders in the skies over Kentucky and the Penny Royal, and the numbers are climbing. And since the sightings of tic-tac-shaped UFOs began to be reported on the Pacific coast, there's been a spike in sightings of similarly shaped craft in the skies over Kentucky. Is it the Kentucky anomaly that's drawing all these unidentified craft to this region? Or is it something else that's beneath this area? Are the rumors of underground bases true? Is it the gold in Fort Knox? Or is it something older and stranger? Something we are only now beginning to understand and communicate with. The phenomena takes many faces. I'm open to all beliefs. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, I have no absolute beliefs, but I have a lot of suspicions. All of these things, you know, seem very connected. Whether it's UFOs, goat men, Sasquatch, it all seems like it's just a part of the same thing. Kentucky, in my research, as much as I can tell, has as much activity or more activity than places we hear about a lot. Arizona, New Mexico, Kentucky is a hotbed for all of this. And it always has been. I mean, you know, dating back historically, you know, then, it, and, and speaking of UFOs, uh, 
from from the beginning of the modern UFO age, we had the Captain Mantell incident. I mean, it was literally six months after the Roswell incident. We've got a fighter pilot chasing a UFO and maybe a UFO killing him, you know. And just from there on out, we've got the uh, Stanford abductions. We've got another incident of a helicopter being chased by a UFO. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on and on. So, you know, UFOs are my personal favorite face. I mean, that's that's what I'm into. That's what I dig. So I, I, I suppose I have zoned in a lot on that. But, you know, then just in the nature of this work, you start looking at Bigfoot sightings. And it's just as vast and as broad as the UFOs. You start looking at, at ghosts and that type of, of phenomenon. It's the same thing. It, it's as vast and as broad in Kentucky as, as all this stuff. Uh, my name's Benjamin Foster. I am originally from Russell Springs, right outside of Somerset. Uh, I do a podcast called Midnight Kentucky with Stephen Clark. We've been doing it uh, three or four years now, uh, just digging into the legends, myths, and paranormal supernatural in Kentucky. Space is interesting, right? Obviously. Space is interesting because, you know, we've sent telescopes, we have recordings, but really we have, we have no fucking idea what it is, what's out there, what's happening with it. We're trapped here. So we literally have a void all around us that... And that's not to say that it's extraterrestrial. That's not to say that these things are, you know, interplanetary. But they definitely come out of this void for whatever reason. So we have a very personal history with UFOs because it is stuff like that. It's like the Paintsville train crash, you know, the Stanford abductions, uh, Mantell incident, the helicopter incident, which I'm thinking was in Lexington, Kentucky. Louisville, okay. I knew two L's. Yeah, the ball of light, right? The basketball sells ball of light. It, it swoops at them. And that kind of brings us to what we're seeing lately as far as these cylinders go. And it's so weird because, I don't know, it's that faces thing. I mean, whatever, whatever we're dealing with, it seems like it knows to take shape of, you know, something. So as soon as we get these reports of these Tic Tacs in, you know, uh, the West Coast, and we're getting these uh, disclosure whatever, which, you know, I have my own thoughts about that. But we're, we're constantly now inundated with these talks of we're, we're going to find out. We're going to find out the mysteries are getting closed. Suddenly, over Kentucky, these cylinders start showing up. These Tic Tac objects start showing up. And, you know, ironically, one of the first people that I know of that reported these one of the things was Barton Noonley. He takes this photo, and then suddenly it's like the gates break loose, and everybody's reporting these things. Everybody. The Tic Tacs? The Tic Tacs, yeah. As best I can trace back, so it's weird how I, how this happened, too. I'm sitting there with, with some friends at the kitchen table, and my wife's sitting there across from me. And, you know, this is kind of dinner table talk for us. So I'm like, do you guys see this photo that, that Barton Noonley took? And I, I slide it across the table, and my wife goes, oh, yeah, I forgot to show you this photo that I took two weeks ago. She pulls out her phone, and she hands me the photo, and it's the same fucking thing. Same fucking thing. Many faces, man. Many faces. And see, that's another thing that I've that I've run across a lot, which I'm sure you guys have too. These things like dogs they like uh, they like horses they like cows obviously cattle mutilations but it's really big here in kentucky for whatever reason that 
you'll hear about Sasquatches taking dogs off or dog men taking dogs or UFOs taking dogs. I mean, for whatever reason. And, and that story, you know, we talk a lot about on the show about topics, the old school form. Well, now all that shit's gone. You know, they, they removed it all. But, man, you could... And, of course, that's all circumstantial, you know, whatever. But you could go back for years and read about all these different encounters in Kentucky where these things have drug off people's dogs or kill their dogs. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a, that's an ongoing thing for whatever reason. I totally don't subscribe to the blue beam thing. Like, I don't, I don't think that's what's happening. I think, honestly, I think that that's kind of an attempt to dumb down what we're seeing, you know? And, and like I said, at 10 years old, I would have stood here and argued with you that no, the government's covering it up. You know, there's, there's, they know, they know about it all. It's aliens. I don't think that they do. I honestly wonder if they, and and I'm I'm somebody else has said this, but I honestly wonder if they know really any more than what a lot of uh, private investigators know. That being said, uh, Nick Redfern has an excellent book called Final Events. Such a great book, and you know, again, I don't buy into the whole Christian slant of it. That's that's not my deal, but I do think that uh, maybe maybe they have made contact. And maybe whatever these things are have have tried to convince them that they're extraterrestrial for whatever reason. And and you know uh, when 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 the 2017 disclosure started, we heard this same talk. There were there were people within these factions that were arguing about whether to release this shit because they were worried about if it was demonic or not. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's you know my own thoughts on it though. I I don't know. I wonder you know because so much of the UFO lore and the cover up lore requires, you know, like the Eisenhower agreement and stuff like that, which is a very interesting story. I don't know if that actually happened, you know, but it requires them to be in on the joke in a lot of way. Like it requires the the government to be in on it and to, uh, you know, allowing whatever's happening to happen. I don't think they're in on it. I don't think they can control it. And I think they're kind of fucking terrified of it. And, and just like in war, you know, you want to decrease, you know, as, as in warfare, you want to decrease the danger of your enemy or whatever, right? Well, if you have no fucking idea what these things are and they're in your airspace constantly and, you know, your fighters are engaging with them and, and they can't do shit about it, you probably want to be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We know what those are. We got it undercover. Don't worry about it. You know, so I don't uh, ultimately like with all this stuff. I ultimately don't know, um, but it. The more I dig in and the more I see these people talk, the more I'm like, they don't know shit about what's going on. For me, it kind of goes back to the myth about Hermes and and Apollo's cattle. You know, and and cattle. There's there's the whole cattle thing, the cattle mutilations. There's and I'm gonna butcher this myth, but. There's a story about how Hermes, uh, Apollo had like these prized fucking cattle, right? And they were just like the cream of the crop. And Hermes comes in and he steals the cows and eats them. And like he la- and he's laughing his ass off because that's what Hermes does. He's the trickster, you know, he's the introduction of all this stuff. We see like that very shit happening over and over and over with this phenomenon. Like the cattle mutilations, the dog killings, things like that. Like we see that same element, which to us as human beings who love these creatures is like, oh, fuck, man, that's that's fucking brutal. But we ultimately don't know what they think's funny or what the joke is. You know what I mean? (laughs) 
When I first encountered the story of the savants at Oakwood in the 1970s, it was Rod Zimmerman, the local historian here in Somerset, that told Darian and I the strange saga. He related a lot of disturbing information and stories about Somerset that evening in our studio, a lot of which we didn't want to know. But the story of the controversy at Oakwood regarding the witch cult, at the time we didn't know anything about that. And Rod, more than anyone else in this town, would know. His stepfather was hired in 1973 to replace the acting director, Arthur Trunkfield, who was in charge of the facility when the controversy of the witch cult and patient abuse broke. The anonymous letter, of which we have not been able to obtain a copy, despite FOIA requests to the state of Kentucky and its health commission, told a tale that sounded like ceremonial and ritual magic was being used to transact communications with non-human intelligences in the tunnels beneath the property that connected the various administration buildings and resident cottages. It also mentioned torture and that occult symbols were burned into the backs of some of the residents. Though the anonymous letter did not mention it specifically, we later learned from Rod Zimmerman the story of the savants. Then, to separately mention to Dan Dutton, Oakwood and its potential connection to the Oakwood King and Pan, which in turn prompted him to relate his strange encounter with those same savants, sent me into a state of panic. Dan's story confirmed what Rod Zimmerman had told us, and it was the same story told by other witnesses that worked at Oakwood in the 1970s. There were nine residents considered high-functioning savants living in the facility that certain staff members believed were inhabited by alien intelligences that wanted to save humanity. It was the classic Space Brothers tale that these beings were here to save us from ourselves if we would only listen. And they gave Dan Dutton a message that he doesn't remember. And that message continues to shape this mystery and our lives in ways that are still unfolding. The work that has recently started on recreating Dan's first opera, The Stone Man, has stirred something up at Dan's farm, Dandyland. Communications appear to be coming through various mediums and means, apparently from entities in another place and time, guiding and directing Dan in the reimagining of The Stone Man and other new works. He's being instructed on the building of something, the construction of something specific. But alien communications and interactions with the other aren't new to Dandyland. It's just that what's been happening in the here and now seems to be specifically focused on the unfolding of this mystery. Is the presence of a UFO uh, in a person's life, them come in contact with it, is this an aspect of destiny or is this an aspect of uh, the working out of some cosmic plan like that, a destiny, or is it just an accident? Just Joe and Seba happen to be out fox hunting, laying on a blanket whenever a UFO happens to come down looking around in front of them. Stranger things have happened than this in the universe, believe it or not, than, than two beings are laying on one prone surface whenever a another being or another ship of beings from another dimension happened to pop into that dimension and then just as quickly pop back out of it because what the hell is this we don't even know you know wow it looks really weird down here 
Yeah, what are they doing? Look, there's two of them over there. Whoa, right? <laughs> and if you think about things like scale and um, different types of sensitivities, <clears throat> what if, isn't it a given that any kind of, uh, what is a higher intelligence? How did gravity and verticality just slip into this conversation so casually? right higher intelligence right so this was the ordeal i i know that <clears throat> this is one of the things he talked about in pinball and i want to touch very very delicately on it because as we've seen it's a sensitive zone there and that has to do with the supposed superior intelligences that were that were being um housed in a in a local housing facility for <laughs> for beings who have a higher intelligence. But you know, the contrary me immediately, even when I was told that, I resist listening to it. I was like, I don't, you know, who said? I mean, how do you know? How do you know something smarter than you are? Because it spanks your ass? I mean, how are you gonna figure out whether something is smarter than you? I'll challenge it to a game of chess and every time it beats you? Well, that would be, that would be either the first time whenever I would play to lose so that I could get the hell out of playing chess. <laughs> or surely the second time when I would lose out of sheer desperation to get out of playing chess. So yeah, I would lose automatically with any alien I would play chess with. But I don't think that necessarily means that, uh, that it's a superior intelligence. <clears throat> Maybe it's just perceiving things. Uh, in a different way than what I perceive it in. I will say this, I do believe that there are levels of aptitude that you can have and that it does pay to train yourself if you want to have aptitudes in those levels. So, yeah. Okay, which would you rather do? You're gonna to get to talk to an alien from another dimension and they're gonna give you a choice of aliens, but they don't know how to describe them except to describe them in human terms. So would you rather talk to uh, one of the greatest alien poets that ever existed, or would you want to talk to the, the typical alien redneck? I mean, what's your conversation there? Which do you think that you will, and that's really going to tell you in a way what it is that you're going to experience in one of those situations, right? I really didn't remember much about what happened to me that day, and I wonder if the reason why I don't is that I just in part was resistant to some of the presuppositions that were in place about what it was and what was happening in the first place. You know, it almost seemed like that that place was more of an odd imposition being placed on the formatting of the, of the information than it was a helpful platform to be standing on. It just, I think it has to do with how deep you're willing to dive as to what you're, how, what you're gonna experience of things like that. But let's go with the idea that there are beings that are superior to us and what way could possibly be superior to humans? Able to count faster? Is this gonna make a big difference? <laughs> you know? Um, might they have superior aesthetic senses? 
If so, are they offended by this, this planet and its hopeless vulgarity, which it does possess in plentitude? Are they slumming when they come to see us? It's like, wow, you couldn't believe that you thought you knew a sleazy sex site. Well, let me tell you about a little planet called Earth. You know, uh, pack up your best probe and go down there and just, you know, you're not going to believe what's going to go down. So, I mean, you, you, having col collected the stories and pursued the information, you have a, I mean, I know that you know these tropes that I'm playing on here and playing with in it. That question, I think, always needs to be asked first by what instrument will I register the presence of an alien being? You know, if you can answer that question, then you can maybe move to the second one of whether or not you have had such an experience or could have such an experience. I don't know whether anyone could definitively say that you could not have such an experience based upon what data would that be based upon? So, you know, I found myself very unsupported by humanity, by my humanness in my efforts to explore the universe. That's the biggest problem I see with the majority of the stories about interactions with aliens is that um, the people who seem to be having them seem to be so dumb in an aesthetic sense. I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound so condescending, but they just, aesthetically, they don't seem to be prepared at least to have that experience. At least in the old days, whenever the gods came and got after people, they were, they raped and pillaged them and they never forgot it. They, you know, they gave birth to a continent or something other afterwards. It's like, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah, the, the modern mind is, uh, it's quite a bit too brittle, generally, I think, to be able to much have experiences like that. On the other hand, now I think we are coming to a time whenever um, the pigeons are coming home to roost in the construction of our brains and our beliefs about intelligence. And, and we believe that the computer is going to be like this uh, lifeline that's going to help us get into the future. But we don't have any idea whether, in fact, it's just a, it's just a, a, a particularly amazing toy or, or at least enough to keep to keep us busy playing with it. So I don't really see that that's going to be a way that people are going to communicate with another intelligence. The idea that ever more sophisticated machines um, begin to have this ever more sophisticated dialogue leads right to another one of these land of the deads. Worse yet, like mine, one of my, my sleazy land of the dead where I'm being spit-roasted by Anubis robots. You know? <laughs> Ranked by werewolves. Right, yeah. Robot ones, just to make it a little bit <laughs> more chilly and further out there. <laughs>
He also owns property that overlooks the infamous Skinwalker Ranch. I reached out to him to discuss similarities between the Pennyroyal and Skinwalker Ranch, especially in regard to UFO and orb sightings and connections between anomalous aerial phenomena and the occult. The occult aspect led us into a discussion regarding Jack Parsons and his connections to the space program and the appearance of flying saucers in 1947. So one of the, one of the most amazing matters of fact that Jack Parsons, who was heavily into the OTO and involved with summoning and invoking an opening, uh, summoning and invoking entities as well as opening portals out in the deserts um, with the help of others, many of the top minds in science have come to the realization that here this phallic symbol that we're shooting into space gets the maximum amount of thrust with the pentagram as the output for that thrust. And nothing nothing has been able to give more lift or thrust than the pentagram, which is just, what in the heck? These, is it coincidence? It doesn't seem to be. It does not seem to be coincidence that here we have a, a major sorcerer slash magician, and yet he's also the head of space exploration. It's weird, man. I mean... I mean, do you, from what I'm describing to you, do you see a lot of correlations with the Uinta Basin, that area? I mean, like... Yes. It, it, it is an area that... <laughs> it's so much like what you're describing in that you just don't go certain places. They don't talk about it, but they'll say things like, you just don't go there. Yeah, you've heard about that place, right? Or, or things like that. And that's when you know there's something there. And if you ask more questions, there's always an epic story or a multitude of epic stories or synchronicities that are very difficult to explain without some sort of either cult-like high strangeness that is manifested or tapped into. The tulpas. I mean, are these tulpas? It makes you wonder. It's like, it's almost as if, you know, many, many of the things like with Dan Dutton and all this stuff, like the nine, there's synchronicities, but when the synchronicities match up with other synchronicities and complete both of these, uh, for lack of a better word, unconnected synchronicities, there, there seems to be a history of strategic locations that have unnecessarily high, high strangeness, illness, death, uh, people going missing and it's almost as if these non-corporeal entities uh, or whatever you want to call them strategize, economize and monopolize on these locations and almost use the people as like little chess pieces possibly and then we wonder why we gain knowledge of this and it all manifests where in reality like you like you mentioned about those nine patients if something like that is taking place, I'm just theorizing, maybe we're all to an extent being manipulated a little bit. Maybe not as much as those nine patients, but a little bit. I believe that much like Frank Salisbury, if, if anybody has an opportunity or finds it online by the Utah UFO display by PhD Frank Salisbury, um, he was a scientist, a botanist that lived on the same street as I did. 
And not only that, I didn't know this. Like it's the synchronicities again, but um, the interesting thing is he was convinced and I be, have become convinced that the observer is the key or key to this. It's kind of like, you know, does, it, does a tree fall in the forest if you don't see it fall? It's a, but it's much deeper than that because we're talking about an entity who engages with consciousness, much like you said. And he believed that these were some sort of uh, entity which would carry with it the possibility of the observer seeing it and do a display for the observer that would give some sort of message that the observer had to receive. Now, that could be whatever. Uh, it, it may follow whatever the observer's uh, dictation is because, again, the observer is key. And like you said about the land, I was more interested when I was able to purchase some land. I was more interested in land, not so much land. Well, yeah, land where things took place, yes, but also land where the most observation took place, where the most eyes were on the prize. And uh, this the, the land that I purchased was a lover's lane of sorts. And I mean, just crowded every weekend, lots of eyes, lots of displays, lots of cases, no need to prove a thing. You know, it was interesting because I remember that the people I bought the place from, I said, have you ever seen anything? And they said, well, actually this wall here, they had a wall with no windows facing basically the display. And I thought, well, gosh, that makes no sense at all. Having done some interesting invocations ourselves, and having lightning destroy things right in those spots. It's, it's been very interesting because now, uh, having rebuilt the structures, I didn't put windows on that side, you know? Like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like you know, we actually have to, you know, some people want to actually get some rest sometimes and, and you don't want to constant. So, but the, the observation in my opinion is key. I, I don't know what the connections are. They're, I've theorized some of, some of my more uh, intense sightings have been pretty close. One of which always comes to mind, just for intensity, is what, what can, lack of a better word, can just be described as three metallic silver balls, much like the ones in Phantasm, you know, like these, these balls on, you know, on a desert ridgeline in the middle of nowhere, flying in pattern in a formation at night above two of us, and we, we were so scared, this thing was flashing from time to time. And we were so scared, we got in a crack, uh, just really close to each other to just kind of get out of perception of this thing, whatever it was. It seemed like a drone of some sort. You know, it just came right up on top of us, like, you know, just right there and flashed us. And I remember, you know, thinking, are we okay? Like, what happened? Like, what did it do? Did it just take our picture? Did it? Nothing happened. We were totally fine. And, but it, it, it just, the unknown is so scary. I don't know what it was. You know, some people say this stuff could be military uh, testing. Others claim that this is something else. The three, you know, more ancient technology, if, if you want to go down that whole expanded theory. But, you know, there was three. And it just kind of freaked me out that there was three. And they were in a shape of a triangle. Because that just can, you can go down so many paths, you know, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the triangles in Egypt, the triangles that people see as UFOs, the entire uh, 
what you were talking about with cybernetics, not just the observer, but you need the observer observing the thing being observed and then the third party. And what it was, I still have no idea. No idea. What do I think it was? I think it was a drone of some sort. It could have been ours. It could have been something else's. It could have been, or it could have just been raw energy. But it definitely, to us, it decided to take that image. And same night, this is where it gets crazy. Some of these things happen, again, like really, like a shotgun blast. You know, they lump up in areas. And uh, a, you know, a very opposite, opposite entity that may have been the same thing. After that, we saw the light kind of, we kind of heard the thud. It just kind of like landed in the dust, like the desert dust. We popped up to like see what happened, you know, like, oh man, maybe we got, you know, we, we, we started thinking like people, like we monopolize on this, like it didn't crash, you know, and we got up and like looked and, and in its place, you know, wherever this, this general area, the city where this thing thud, this puff where it hit the ground, or at least it sounded like it hit the ground is this canine, this wolf-like creature that's very dark and it seems to be forming from what can only be described as gnats or like little nanotechnology, little black, misty, amorphous, wisping, uh, like, a, like a swirling swarm of bees. And uh, they are creating, literally creating this thing as we're watching it, like a 3D printer in front of us, you know? And we're just like, whoa. And then the dog starts coming, the dog, the dog, typical human. Then this, this thing, this this amazing thing that we see, you know, it's in the form of a canine, but it starts walking towards us and we freak out. And as quickly as it manifested, it demanifests in the same way. These little amorphous bees and stuff regenerate into the form of a very real porcupine, which Finally, one of us, you know, we started videotaping this thing and it's a real porcupine. And we're looking and we're just like, God, you gotta be kidding me. It's a porcupine and it's like playing with rocks and doing things that are very not porcupine-like. Um, or play, playing with us. It comes right up to us. And it's, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point was, whatever this was can be explained any way we want. Um, it can be explained as an alien artificial intelligence. It can be explained as a nanotechnology from another planet. It could be explained as, you know, the gin in the desert with this smokeless fire manifesting as it has been explained for centuries. And all of these things can be explained in a very accurate way, yet none of them have anything to do with each other. Okay, so that's the trap, is putting a name on it. I, I believe that that is the trap. And because let's say that, okay, in my case, um, if I had to bet the ranch, if, if somebody like you just tried, you know, put me up against a corner and say, you have to call it something, you have to call it something. What are you going to call it? I would have one of two names. It would either be Jin or Jin's uh, the best name. Um, the other name would be ancient names, <laughs> but they are basically representing the same thing. The creators, the, uh, what what is mentioned in the book of Enoch, Enochian magic, these these gods with a small G that the big G would call on because the guy's busy, and 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 these little guys that this is what they're this is what they're made to do. This is what they're made to do, and it reminds me so much so much of 
uh, call it what you will, uh, a creator, a dissolver, a coagulator, a, a, a baphomet, um, a machine of sorts. It's almost an EBE. If Elof, if, if, so this is where it gets difficult because it is, we all feel a tendency that we're here in life on a mission. So it's not far removed to believe that entities higher on some non-corporeal sphere or uh, ability of being to, to be here without the ability to be seen for the most part, not always. But I think that the, that isn't far-fetched to, to believe that this is possible. And not only is it not far-fetched, it's highly documented in like every book of faith and now in quantum mechanics, science, and some of the areas we're discussing. I've always wondered what the Dayton Witch actually was. There's only one other reference to it, and that appears in Elena Freeland's book, Under Nine Eyes Sky. Of course, she's the editor of Downard's autobiography, Carnivals of Life and Death, so it stands to reason that she would have knowledge of it, or even invented the concept. Also, it should be noted that Downard supposedly found these items, including the Dayton Witch, in 1931. The Brunel University mentioned on a tag attached to the Dayton Witch, was not founded until 1966. Still, the idea that this might be some cybernetic or cryptological device used in the rituals of a secret society, as Elena Freeland suggests, or even a clandestine intelligence service, intrigued me greatly. Even if the Dayton Witch wasn't real, it got me asking the question whether or not there were other such devices in history that might have been used to decode reality or function as a device to understand encrypted and occulted knowledge. And, as it turns out, there is a long, strange history of ritual machines used for divination and the pursuit of decoding occult knowledge. These were the precursors to modern computational devices and paved the way for the technological age in which we currently live. Oh, this was something, too, that I, I don't know if a lot of people have thought about. The Dayton Witch, right? So mm -hmm. so that's been a big a big sort of uh, intersection for us because there's Dayton, Ohio, and obviously you'd think, like, you know, uh, Wright-Patterson or something, you know, mm -hmm. the connection with Dayton. But actually, if, if you live in Fort Thomas, about three or four miles east of uh or how i forget how far it is of fort thomas is dayton kentucky which the the main feature of dayton kentucky is this really old freemason temple right mm -hmm. and so i've wondered was he ref is the reference to dayton kentucky not dayton ohio you know um, i th i think in the uh, manuscript he, he is uh linking it with uh NCR National Cash Register in uh, Ohio. Oh, okay. Yeah, with with who manufactured it, right? Isn't that yeah? Funny? And then it's yeah. and then it's the uh, the property of oh, what's the university in England? Brunel. Yeah, Brunel, which is which didn't well, exist it's, until it's it's somehow years. connected. He sees see that's another thing. It takes time to go through all these different. Uh, 
versions of the story. I guess uh, does that appear in uh, Carnivals of Life and Death? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's some other stuff. You'll see it in the uh, Lost. I'll call it manuscript. He goes through that Dayton Witch thing. Then I have another version. I'll try to send you everything. So uh, it's kind of tracing it back to what was the first version of the story you know that might be helpful because it changes over time and he uh, calls the guy in that uh, the manuscript he fi- finds it in an old barn is that what happened in carnivals of life and death oh so he uh it's the tomb no, see the- okay it's different in the uh, book oh the no manuscript shit. yeah he was uh, i guess it's in uh what was the, uh, I guess it's Fort Thomas, and he was uh, living in with his parents in a rooming house, and there was a Dr. Ross, not Dr. Kramer, so that might be another thing there, a Dr. Ross, and uh, there, who built the place, and he lived in the rooming house for a while. Dr. Ross was kind of reserved character, but there was also a barn adjacent and you know shelby says he was fascinated by the barn and he'd go exploring and even after he moved out of the rooming house he went back to that barn and that's where he came across not only the dayton witch but the series of books right and one of them was written by a uh, james shelby downer that he later took to his father is that is that how it goes in carnival yeah that, that is that's exactly how it goes yeah yeah and that, elsewhere, he writes that he found out later that those were some type of Freemasonic uh, books, and they'd uh, be transported around the country, and they'd have a chain on them, and they'd be locked up. And then it sounded like there was some type of ritual. Then they'd move the books to someplace else and chain them up. It's pretty convoluted, but uh, no, that's so, not that's not in carnivals, though. Yeah, so it's a. It's a different version. I don't know why that changed, <laughs> you know. Elena Freeland outlines the use of these machines for not just the pursuit of knowledge and basic truths, but also as ritual devices used in ceremonial magic. As Elena Freeland states in her book, Under an Ionized Sky, quote, the modern cryptic relationship between machines and their encoded secrets harks back to soldier playwright. Sophocles, who introduced the McCain to Greek drama by lowering it onto the stage to provide the deus ex machina for the plot's supernatural intervention. Electrical computer ciphers are equally magical in that they appear at the stroke of a key. The year that the bomb shattered matter, its father, Vannevar Bush, had a dream in which a deus ex machina called Mimex was perched on a doctor's desk, calling up patients' files and case histories. In the July 1945 Atlantic Monthly article, as we may think, Vannevar explained how one day soon whole encyclopedias with associative connections would appear magically on the Mimex screen, and professionals and laymen alike would turn to it as a library or oracle. The Mimex would be self-teaching and relieve people of the need for memory or recall. Freeland goes on to explain that For centuries, high-degree Freemasons and wealthy cognoscenti have quietly used gear models for computation and forecasting the future, at least since the bronze head answered yes or no to Gerbert de Aralac, the Benedictine monk professor at the University of Reims, elected Pope Sylvester II. 
from British intelligence agent Lord Francis Bacon's 17th century ciphered binary code to the encrypted Dayton Witch with its cipher book, once the property of the cybernetics department at Brunel University in High Wycombe, just up the road from Sir Francis Dashiell's magical hellfire estate in Oxfordshire, alleges Freeland, families with wealth and standing have had access to intellectual, computational, and magical help. One of the earliest ritual cryptographic devices to be developed was the Zarya, an ancient computational device designed to reconfigure notion into ideas through a process of randomization and resonance. Zarya has created thought out of non-thought by presenting the mind with an event that acted as a singularity, a meeting of the past and future in the present moment, and converted thinking into a pure act where natural chance i.e. randomness, guided the human operator through intention. The inventors and operators of the Zarya used the occultation and encryption of intentionality as a means of mechanical divination to discover and manufacture knowledge. The Zarya had a profound effect on Western mystics, theologians, and philosophers, most notably Majorcan philosopher and writer Ramon Lowell, who in the 13th century universalized the astrological and combinatorial component of the Zarya into a system of meditative cognition that is considered the first thinking machine. His logic machine was used as a teaching device at the University of Paris for over 300 years until the Jesuits banned it as a form of divination. With this work, Lowell became one of the first people to try to make logical deductions by mechanical means. I mean, even the, the origins of cryptography are within esoteric practice, like Trisemius, and that, um, you know, back in the, the late Middle Ages, you know, and that's where, that's kind of where I became interested in Raymond Lull's work, um, because it, esoteric cryptography has a different starting point for what you're trying to do with it. So there was this idea of the Adamic language, which was the, the first language, like the language that could name and create. And the idea in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance was that if you could find this Adamic language, you would then interact with reality kind of at like the code level, right? Like you'd be able to program it. And that's where a lot of um, practical Kabbalah comes in and that. Um, and Raymond Lull, who becomes the father of machine learning through uh, these memory wheels that he created, this the Ars Magna, the grand art that he that he developed, the kind of it, you know, sort of the first computer almost. Um, it was all manual and analog, like there was no digital interface or anything. But his whole concept was that if you arranged language and understanding to their right correspondences that you would be able to access the realm of the angels and that it would it would lead you to this greater relationship with the divine um and he saw his device if put into place would almost be the herald of the apocalypse because it would allow humanity to transcend their differences through this right correspondence of language and sign and symbol and understanding. Um, and in doing so, they would realize God, you know. 
So it's a, it's sort of a different way of looking at it. Whereas now we look at it like you can program a computer, you can translate, right? Like if you do a cryptography, you're you're hiding messages, or you're you're able to, you know, send secret messages and that kind of thing. But in terms of like esoteric value, where that all comes out of is the idea of of not hiding things, but understanding on a different level these correspondences that you can then work backwards towards the the prima materia, you know, the source of all. The Lullian Circle, one of numerous such logic machines devised by Lull, consisted of two or more paper discs inscribed with alphabetical letters or symbols that referred to lists of attributes. The discs would then be rotated individually to generate a large number of combinations of ideas. A number of terms or symbols relating to those terms were laid around the full circumference of the circle. These symbols were then repeated on an inner circle, which could be rotated so that the combinations created would reveal all possible truths about the subject of the circle. Lowell based this system of mechanical analytics on his belief that there were a limited number of basic, undeniable truths in all fields of knowledge, and that we could understand everything about these fields of knowledge by studying the combinations of their elemental truths. The idea to use mechanical analytics as a means of studying basic universal truth was further developed by Giordano Bruno in the 16th century, and later by Gottfried Leibniz in the 17th century. Leibniz gave Lowell's idea the name Ars Combinatoria, by which it is now known. As a result, many computer scientists hold the opinion that Lowell was the original founding father of the computer and that his system of logic was the beginning of information science. Giordano Bruno was a 16th century Italian Dominican friar, philosopher, mathematician, and a hermetic occultist known for his cosmological theories, which were conceptually built upon the Copernican model. Bruno proposed that the stars were distant suns surrounded by their own planets and that these planets might foster life of their own, a cosmological position known as cosmic pluralism. He also insisted that the universe is infinite and had no center. Bruno is also known for his development of memory palaces, which allowed him to build and store vast amounts of information. Many of these involved creating graphical interfaces and sigils, which acted as keys to unlock the information chained together in his memory, like a computer accessing stored RAM. All right, so um, where do we start with Giordano Bruno? Giordano Bruno is one of the most important characters in the history of magic. And one that I'm very grateful that in recent years, it started to become more and more well known to the Anglo-Saxon speaking world, you know, the English speaking world, if you want. Bruno is a very interesting character in the sense that, uh, first of all, we need to put him in history. He was born in uh, 1548 and then he died burned at the stake by the Inquisition on the 17th of February of 1600. So we're talking about what's oh, like many years ago, okay? Like like before everything else, like it's like Renaissance pretty much time, like the end of Renaissance and the beginning of, of modern era. Uh, he was, um, I mean, he was, it was pretty much, you gotta understand, he was a Dominican friar, okay? So he was a, mem- a, 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 a man of the, of the cloth, and yet, 
he was he be, he, 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 he became uh, his uh, you know his claim to fame in history it's because he, he held some of the most radical uh, ideas in the towards the cosmos for the time and even for today in this day and age we're talking the moment of time where the, Coper the Copernican model of uh, was still uh, it, it was like it was novel at the time, right? <laughs> like, and he pretty, pretty he got it and ran with it, and thanks to his own studies, because he was an hermetic occultist, he was a magician by all means. And at the time, remember that in, in recent Renaissance time, you had people like Marsilio Ficino, uh, you had people like uh, I mean, Giovanni da Correggio, Ludovico Lazzarelli, Pico della Mirandola, and of course then uh, Cornelius Agrippa, John Dee, you know, Paracelsus, that names that are maybe more well known to the English-speaking uh, English world. All those people were magicians but they were all also the forefront of science whatever science was at the time alchemy and chemistry was the same like they were like, like people were engaging with deep mathematics like giordano bruno or john d but also engaging with like trying to speak with angels um and that's you know john d would come up with the enochian system which to this day it is the most powerful and primal uh, engine of magic that we can actually uh, access. The most important thing to understand about Bruno is that it was literally the first to propose that the stars were in fact not just points in the primum mobile, but they were distant suns surrounded by their own planets. And the fact is that he raised the, the idea that these planets might in fact foster life of their own. He was the father of what was called at the time cosmic pluralism, and he postulated, was well, something we know to be true now, that the universe is infinite, so it can have no center. Now, this is something that we, we keep it for granted right now. But at the time, this was high heresy, because the Earth must have been the center of the universe, because if God created man in his own image, he must have placed man at the center of the universe. So for him to just say, you know what, guys, maybe not, <laughs> because my own uh, my own research, and we can discuss a little bit of the researches in a second, proved me that well, we are just one of many, and the reality is that all of them, whoever they are, they're all children of God. It was, it still was, you know, at the end of the day, it was still like a, uh, a Dominican, so it was still like a Christian. He, 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 he engaged with the idea that you know, man might just have been one of many. You know, one of many children of God. This was already enough for to, to put him, um, you know, to brand him as an heretic. The reality is that when we look at his philosophy, he went deeper into it because he, he, he denied things like eternal damnation. He denied the idea of the Trinity, which is a massive one. He denied the, divi the divinity of Christ or the virginity of Mary because he would say, like, Mary gave birth to Jesus. She could not be a virgin. <laughs> And one of the most important one, which is something that it's very technical for magicians there, he denied the idea of transubstantiation the way it was described by the um, the church. And to get, I mean, without going too much into detail that, he, he pretty much said like, yeah, that cannot happen the way they tell us it happens. In many ways, Bruno's version was almost of a Christian pantheism so Christ was still an important figure, was still like, you know, the bringer of a new, well, at the time of a new Ian, of a new law, but 
it was the idea that the world was not was much bigger because of course he he entertained the idea of cosmos of the whole cosmos for this you know he was uh, tried by the inquisition uh, for seven years and he was burned at the stake in 1600 as i said in campo de fiori campo de fiori is this beautiful square in rome uh, where I spent many nights getting drunk when I was younger. So, <laughs> in front of the statue of, of of Bruno, which is still there. If you if you happen to be in Rome, go and visit it. It is one of those magical places. And I know I know you're interested in you know in, in the magic of place. So that you know Campo de Fiori in Rome is definitely a, is definitely an exodus of energies. And uh, because it's because something important happened there. Because I would say. Like, if we want to engage the idea that, you know, the death of a martyr is a moment in time that, you know, releases some energy, well, that's something that really happened there. The idea that there are multiple space Jesuses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this idea that, like, well, if there are other planets with other people, and if, if, if they develop the way we did, and they have Christian ideals, then they'll have a Jesus. You know, they, 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 that, that's also like a, a Gnostic idea, the fact that there is the Christ consciousness, right? And the Christ consciousness is an eon, and eon really is um, not just a period of time, but it's also like a communication of information, if you want. It's a, it's a vector of information. This vector of information, can, the Christ consciousness can, can come onto our world as Jesus, because at some point, like it, it, it incarnated into this, you know, the, the son of a uh, of a carpenter in in Galilee. Uh, however, maybe in another plane planet, maybe it could incarnate somewhere else. So there are many Jesuses, if you want, because the reality there is that what is behind is what it's called the Paraclete or the Holy Ghost. Well, it's the is the is the is Gnostic eon of Christ, it's the cosmic Christ, if you want to call it. Now, cosmic Christ, maybe this don't put it down because cosmic Christ can be is something that's been used by. Um, you know the usual Nazis, uh, so maybe better not. You know, but but they that I mean that that's a thing. You know, the way that's been used then it's problematic. Bruno is known to be one of the masters of the art of memory. Now, the art of memory, it's in you know in a nutshell, is being able to remember things, being able to master your memory, being able to have like almost like. Turn yourself into a supercomputer. Turn yourself into um, a living and breathing uh, computational machine that receives information and stores information perfectly, and you're able to access information perfectly. Now, this seems, I mean, this seems relatively interesting. Uh, some of you might be like me and having almost some photographic memory. So some of you might have a, not remember anything. So that already looks magical. But you know, from people like me, when I first was reading, that's like, well, you know, I remember everything, most of it. Less now after I had COVID, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, but definitely, um, I always was able able to retain information very well. The thing is that what the what Bruno's art of memory actually does and. This is something that it is inferred that he learned through hermetic studies passed upon the century since the Pythagorean school. So it was Pythagoras, in fact, one of the earlier you know, masters of the art of memory. And from Pythagoras, if you go back in time, you go back to, the, to Egypt. And if you go even back in time, you can entertain the idea that this might come from you know, mythical Atlantis or whatever antediluvian uh, civilization was there, if there was one. The idea is that by able to master your memory, 
you really turn yourself into like a metaphysical com uh, compute computer if you want and by doing that you can start entertain ideas or have visions of the wider cosmos okay this is how he was able to pretty much speak from from like from from experience to say well you know i've seen these other places he was he would never discuss it in terms like you know i i traveled there on a ship because which is something you know maybe um it's an idea that can be understood easier from you know ufos in enthusiasts enthusiasts this day especially in this day of you know louis elizondo and disclosure <laughs> however the reality for bruno was like well i don't need a ship because i i can i can go there just by entertaining all the possibilities by turning myself into a living breathing computer i mean when we look into into what what like there's a lot of stuff that i mean like is is um his literature is like you, you really should i mean we should, we should talk about bruno forever and i'm, I'm not an expert i mean I, I read i read this stuff but i'm not an expert there is one person who's an expert in bruno is um another freemason actually is martin fox of Lewis Masonic, um, he wrote several couple of books on Bruno actually, and uh, and he's actually recently attempted one of his of Bruno's very complex uh, mnemonic exercise. We've seen it's on YouTube actually. Maybe I can send you the link afterwards. But anyway, um, there's a lot of stuff that like for instance, one of the books that I was just read is the Infinite Universe et Mondi on the un Infinite Universe and Words, where he pretty much you know gives the idea of what he did and how he entertained his this like this crazy ideas for the time uh the, fun, the funny bit is that now we know he was he was right <laughs> you know now we know he was absolutely right and i would say that in many ways he was actually further than when we are because he was right by virtue of discovering truth through magical means and you know scientists in these days will still uh struggle with the idea i mean i i think i think we're really at the uh, at an important intersection of history because we're get, we are living literally living in a time where maybe magical ideas are coming back into on the forefront or even of scientific discussion i mean Rupert Sheldrake is, I mean, is still still is a scientist if you want and his idea of the morphic fields are very very magical <laughs> so uh anyway to you know to, to wrap it up i really i really would suggest everyone to to look into bruno because <laughs> there's a lot there and there's there's a there's a lot that they will take will take a lifetime to to decode pretty much were we receiving messages from an external intelligence or were these communications from the future or even another parallel dimension The Serious Rising tapes, as released, are obviously heavily edited. The Serious Rising tapes that Robert Anton Wilson received from Grimstead were no doubt different from what those of us who have listened to the tapes are familiar with. Wilson states that according to Serious Rising, the Illuminati are preparing the Earth in an occult manner for extraterrestrial contact. This seems to also be confirmed by Grimstead writing as Jim Brandon in his book, The Rebirth of Pan. In the foreword to the book, Grimstead writes that he started out a few years ago to make a movie on Bigfoot and ended by wondering if there is a war in the heavens between the forces of the dog star Sirius and those of the star Orion, the great hunter. 
When asked directly about communication with non-human alien intelligences, Grimstead vehemently denied any personal beliefs in aliens, and that Downard also did not traffic in the alien mythos. But it seems from his own statements and those of Robert Anton Wilson that this couldn't be further from the truth. In regard to the UFO phenomena and abductions, Josh Cutchin and I discussed his book, Thieves in the Night, which traces the tradition of child abduction in ancient and modern folklore and compares the theft of children by fairies to the experience described by modern abductees. There is a pernicious recurring theme throughout, really, time. It's this idea that you see time and again that things from other places want our children. You know, I mean, you could arguably go back to, you know, Mesopotamia is probably where Lilith originates with some uh, child snatching wind demons like Lilitu, I think, um, or Lamashtu, rather. Um, we're talking like, you know, 800 BC or something <laughs> earlier than that. And of course, Lilith was perhaps, um, according to certain. Uh, Judaic text was Adam's first wife who was uh, not made of his rib um, and was punished by God for any number of transgressions but Lilith uh, sort of became a famous child snatching demon um, sometimes she would take the form of a black cat and I wonder if that's where we get you know the idea that cats snatch babies' breath from um, I haven't really seen anything to support that but that's just an idea that I play with yeah I like to write about things that that challenge me, by which I mean like they challenge my 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 beliefs and my suspicions about you know the phenomena as it were, and you know I, there's this there are these clear parallels between you know aliens and uh, and the fairy phenomena, but reconciling the whole human alien hybrid thing uh, with the fairy stuff was something that I really wanted to look into, and it's not even so much that like it's not even so much that the idea of human alien hybrids runs contrary to fairy folklore it doesn't like there's plenty of plenty of people who report or plenty of stories in antiquity not antiquity but you know in medieval stories and whatnot they talk about people being part of a fairy bloodline but rather the idea that um it doesn't quite line up as, as parsimoniously as I, I wanted it to by which i mean you have these ideas of changelings right Changelings were children that uh, were substituted by the fairies. So they would come and find a human child that was typically born but not yet baptized. They would take them and they would put one of three things in its place. Either a sickly fairy infant, uh, an elderly fairy, or a an inanimate object cloaked in glamour to appear like a fairy. Um, called, you know, a stock or a fetch ties into some doppelganger ideas um and the idea for this was of a couple of different motivations uh you know in the case that it was a fairy baby it was there was actually this belief that uh, fairy food was a sham and by extension fairy milk was you know a sham so the, the fairy child would actually be nourished uh by human milk where they would not be nourished by fairy milk so there was that benefit um, you know, with elderly fairies, if they were the ones that were left behind in the place of human children, uh, there was this idea that they would almost sort of live out in the hospice arrangement. But one of the primary motivators for it um, was the idea that fairies were sort of a dying race. And this is a theme that you see throughout a lot of literature, right? The fairies are always leaving, right? But they're never gone. And the aliens are always coming, but never here, as Patrick Harper once said. 
but you know, you see this in talking of the passing of the elves into the West and whatnot. And so it's it's a common idea that the elves are are dwindling, the fairies are dying, they're leaving something along those lines. And the, there was this idea that the fairies were from an atrophied bloodline, right? And they needed to sort of reinject their bloodline with uh, human genetics, human fresh stock, right? Which is the exact same thing you see. Like, you see, like, that entire scenario play out in a lot of uh, alien abduction literature where they're interacting with these babies. But the way these these um, these changelings were described is kind of a one-to-one um, comparison uh, to a lot of these human-alien hybrids that people see. Granted, the setting in which they're introduced in the modern era and the alien abduction era is different, but you still have these listless uh, children with oversized heads and, you know, sometimes oversized eyes, scrawny arms, wispy hair. That sounds just like a changeling, and that's the exact same description that you get in a lot of these hybrid accounts. Now, there are some discrepancies. There is... uh, there's the fact that you know changelings were ravenous, and these fairies don't really, at least these uh, sorry these human alien hybrids don't really seem to be interested in food at all. The the superficial comparisons are seem to be pretty clear. The other thing that sort of I couldn't quite figure out is you know it's not quite a match for the changeling phenomena, right? There's not this substitution of children. Now, granted, you know you have these abductees who experience missing fetus syndrome, where there is a a pregnant woman who has a child taken out of her out of her belly, and sometimes later they'll be shown the the uh, the changeling during what's called a baby presentation aboard a craft. But that still isn't quite you know quite the match. But then it occurred to me that sometimes inversion uh, equals representation, and what I mean by that is uh, I mentioned with the uh, you know the, the fairies are always leaving but never gone, and the aliens are always coming but never here. Sometimes if you look at something from the inverse, it's still an expression of the same motif. And the analogy that I use as a classically trained musician is like, you know, if you have a C and an E, depending on the way that you stack those two inter- that, those two notes and the interval that you create, it can either be, you know, a major third or a minor sixth. Same notes, just in terms of how they're, how they're voiced differently. So inversion is also representation. And the way that you sort of see this changing idea really coming into clarity in the modern UFO era, era is with a lot of these stories of indigo children or, you know, <laughs> or star children, which is this idea that you have these alien children that are being, you know, I'm a star seed. My true parents are on, you know, <laughs> on a spaceship or orbiting Zimbal Ganubi or something, right? But uh, in, in that, it's interesting because the uh, human parents sort of become the changelings in a way like they're the ones who are out of place in the scenario and you find a lot of the star seed star child indigo child literature coming up it was big around you know the turn of turn of the millennium back in the back in the 2000s but uh, you still see some of it still see some of it today yeah there's just a whole bunch of stuff that you can pull apart and look at through the lens of this uh, alien abduction stuff one of the things that i find really fascinating is that you know, I mentioned that you had sickly fairy infants and you had elderly fairies and you also have these things called stocks or fetches that were cloaked to look like human children uh, that the fairies would leave behind in the place of an infant that they stole. And uh, these were oftentimes a, like a, like a, literally like a log. <laughs> I'm thinking about like the log lady from Twin Peaks, like a log or like a uh, um, an effigy, right, carved into the shape of a human being. It was glamorized to make look make it look uh, as if it was an animate child. 
And what's interesting is that uh, there are some researchers. Now, your you know your your mileage may vary on these these individuals um, because they had some pretty. I feel like they flew pretty fast and loose with some of their evidence. But um, both Roger Lear and Daryl Sims, who were alien abduction researchers to varying degrees, claimed that people who held these human alien hybrids would come home and in their laboratory settings, I guess alien abductions in laboratories. Anyway, they would find that their hands fluoresced under black light. And what's interesting is that the fluorescent markings under on people's hands when they touched adult aliens supposedly were green, right? And if they touched these human alien hybrids, the the, the under black light their hands would fluoresce this sort of pinkish red color. And that's the exact same color that chlorophyll glows under black light. So you have this older motif of, you know, this uh, fairy child being a stock or a fetch, which you can tie the word stock into like, you know, root stock and that sort of botanical um, idea. But like you have the older idea of this fairy ch changeling child being basically a log, a plant, right? And then you have in the modern era, these alien abductees holding these human-alien hybrids and coming off with a residue that looks like chlorophyll. I don't know if that means that aliens are plants, <laughs> you know, that's... But, but what I think is interesting is it's an expression of that archetype in a, in a circuitous way, and that's what I really find fascinating about it. I just, I, I really, I, I used to have a lot more patience for people who were like, no, it's little, little green men coming down in spaceships, and like, look, I'm not telling you that it's, you know, the spirit of a rosebud, like it's a little <laughs> elemental earth spirit. I'm not telling you that, but I'm, I'm definitely telling you that it's something stranger than little green men. And because there's just all these connections to the, to the fairy lore. And like, you know, if it's, if it's little green men visiting us in spaceships, they've got to explain why, you know, you see a UFO and you get synchronicities in your life. They've got to explain to you why they take you aboard a craft and you see your dead grandmother. Like these things happen in abductions and in, in UFO sightings that, and they just don't align with our understanding of the way that material scientific flesh and blood aliens would behave you know the idea of being mounted by by pan i mean that's whether you're thinking about it you know in terms of a deity possessing this person you know that has obviously antecedents and plenty of stuff including like you know voodoo loa you know taking over people um but also you know people don't think about this but fairies were attributed possession as well you know it's, it's, uh, you know it, well you'd find you know attributions of madness to elves and fairies and stuff and uh yeah almost as if sort of related to the idea that they could sort of take possession of you in your in your nightmares which is you know something that you all see a lot in fairy lore but that's the thing too so it completely tracks you know i i write about these things and i write about human alien hybrids and all this stuff but like if you held a gun to my head i'm not going to tell you that there are literal human alien hybrids walking around you know what i mean i i think it's true on some level that you know that there's not that if you would cut someone's finger and take their blood and analyze it you get anomalous dna or something i mean you might but like i think that it's more some sort of spiritual metaphor for something that's functioning on that level but then i see something as literally rendered as someone being allergic to iron <laughs> who has this association with the faith folk and it's like oh well that's that's kind of a literal, like literally what you'd expect from somebody from like, you know, a, a, a fairy uh, bloodline or something, which is yeah. not, you know, not unheard of thing either. And, and you know, it was interesting. We were talking about, um, we were talking about orthotony and how it's, it's a grid on which flying saucers move. And then you take that, you transpose that to the ley lines and the mounds and such that they intersect with. And I just see the same thing superimposed into the air, right? 
is that above, as above, so below thing. Because you, you even have these mounds that look like freaking flying saucers, you know? That, you know, that were the points where, spir- you know, spirits would travel between these monuments along these ley lines, along these death roads, along these spirit paths, just as UFOs travel along these, you know, these, these straight grids and look a lot like an unidentified flying mound, you know? fairies stealing children in Memphis, Tennessee in the 1930s and 1940s. It was a woman named Georgia Tan who believed poor people were not fit to raise children. She was one of America's most high-profile child traffickers who operated the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Tan used this unlicensed home for children as a front for her black market baby adoption scheme from the 1920s until a state investigation into numerous instances of adoption fraud closed the institution in 1950. She took children from the poor and sold them to wealthy couples in larger metropolitan areas. Unfortunately, Tan died of cancer before the investigation into her crimes could be made public. Downard believed it would seem that his ex-wife had at one point been involved in the black market high society baby farms perpetrated by Georgia Tan. As Downard states on the serious rising tapes, The truth of the matter is, I know where a great deal of the money came from that set her up. But that is one thing I won't mention on tape. Let's say that there are certain people who apparently that I can't directly connect, but some of who I can connect with the invisible empire set up. And that great pressure was brought to bear on those people for money through the Georgia Tan baby market. In fact, people involved had babies through the Georgia Tan black market. Now, at a certain time, I know she was going through this change, this Phoenix change, that was supposed to start in Phoenix, Arizona, where the past had supposedly been cleaned up, smothered, and like the great whore, Ms. Chudley, at one time, you know, the Hellfire Club, she was being cleaned up for great respectability. Richard Spence was able to determine who Downard's great whore was. He was able to track down Downard's marriage certificate and divorce notice in 1945, and after determining her identity, found a photo from an old newspaper clipping that clearly shows Anne Parton, Downard's ex-wife, with her new husband, Alan Whitwer, at the Del Charo Hotel in La Jolla, California, owned by the powerful oil magnate and political operative, Clint Murchison. Parton served as the social hostess for the club there. The hotel also attracted what became known as the Del Charo set, national politicians, Nixon, Hoover, and others, Texas oilmen and organized crime. About the only mob figure not invited was Roy Cohn. Anthony Summers alleges that Cohn was turned away at the door because he was a Jew. Murchison, who contributed to George Lincoln Rockwell's American Nazi Party, had a no-Jews policy at the Del Charo. No blacks were admitted either, except servants. Alan Whitwer, while managing Murchison's Del Charo Hotel, later recalled, it came to the end of the summer and Hoover had made no attempt to pay his bill. 
So I went to Murchison and asked him what he wanted to do. Murchison told him to put it on his bill. Whitworth estimated that over the next 18 summers, Murchison's hospitality was worth nearly $300,000. At a private meeting at the Del Charo, Whitworth also believed that he overheard Murchison, Hoover, and other powerful figures discussing plans to assassinate JFK. What are the odds that Downard's ex-wife would marry Alan Whitworth, who was a purported witness to the discussion of the killing of the king, JFK? And upon discovering this strange connection, did that send Downard over the edge? The Downardian myth of the arch-conspiracy theorist driving across the country, pulling his Airstream trailer behind him, visiting strange places and locations that would one day become an occult topography of the hidden history of America. It's a great story, a great myth to use to subtly package a number of racist and Aryan theories. But the reality is that Downer was probably stalking his ex-wife, Ann Parton, the great whore, driving back and forth from St. Petersburg, Florida to San Diego, California. Nonetheless, it's still all impossibly strange. From the from the serious rising tapes, we kind of knew a little bit about you know where he might have traveled and 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 who you know who James Shelby Downard was and what he was doing and, and where he might have gone. And a lot of if you look through the historical record and and what is what you can find about him in the newspaper and about his father and all that. Uh, a lot of his life centers around that Memphis, Arkansas area, right? What we were finding is that he's he's mentioned as traveling across to the West Coast, kind of early on, in and it's it's mentioned in Cosmic Trigger and 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 how he shows up there and he's already kind of a traveling person. And it's like, how did he get from this sort of insular world? He was only ever really in in Fort Thomas in Kentucky and because that's where his family was originally from and then the family had moved to Ardmore, Oklahoma and that's where kind of the um, asphalt business had had happened. So how does he get from there to showing up in California? And so um, it, I think it was uh, Richard Spence who sent us uh, his finding that he had found uh, this this person named um, Ann Parton who was uh, Downard's wife. And there is a marriage record uh, for them. And so it's like, so then you kind of find out that's how this all happens, right? So Ann Parton is uh, somehow related. I I, I believe the allegation is, or the the claim is that she is uh, an orphan from the Georgia Tan baby farm uh, episode, which is a big... Uh, it's, it's its own kind of mystery in Memphis. And then from that, she ends up married to James Shelby Downer. We know nothing about that that other than uh, she gets divorced and shows up again married to or, or Alan Whitwer in, in California. And Alan Whitwer himself ends up associated with some hotels in La Jolla, California that are sort of central to a lot of the stuff in the in the JFK assassination. A lot of meetings were ha- were happening at these at these hotels. Uh, I think there's a Hotel Del Charo and uh, La Jolla in, 
and one of them had a pagan room uh, that that is sort of kind of connects all of this. You can sort of see how if Downard was going a little bit crazy and he was following her across the country, he he can kind of he starts seeing that these people are are you know connected with her right and so richard spence is making claim that this is the same person that is the great whore in uh that downer references as as being associated with rituals that uh to saturn at mount palomar and you know he he's he claims that they ran him off the road there and you wonder if that's not associated with the oto temple that was on Palomar and he's just driving on that same road but uh, in either case uh, it's really strange to think in, in one sense if you think of, of Downard as being explained by this weird set of events you've got that on one side but also what if he had these theories or this these paranoid conspiracy theories before it was ever connected you know to the JFK stuff through his ex-wife it's really strange to think about Downard also seems to allege that his ex-wife, whom he repeatedly refers to as the Great Whore, was involved with an occult group near Palomar, and that they even tried to kill him, as he details again in the Serious Rising tapes. A crony of the Great Whore even went so far as to try to run me off the road on my way to Palomar. I come up on the road, and here this rat makes a run for me. Through sheer luck I braked, and he went past, and I came in by him, and pushed him right up on the edge of the mountain. I was tempted real hard to push him over. And right then, about that time, the great whore and a coterie of her pimp crowd came by in a car, coming from Palomar. Now, as you might expect, there are even weirder connections here. And when wading through the sea of weird connections, Downard sells those same seas. In the Serious Rising tapes, Downard mentions the Palomar Observatory specifically stating that it was the site of ritual Saturn worship. Quote, Now, some people believe that the Palomar telescope is focused on Saturn occasionally. I've been trying to find a reason for the, for the Palomar visit that's made, see? So I made the rounds of quite a list of cultists out there. Of course, they were against it, but at certain times the thing was focused on Saturn, and these mystical rays came down through the telescope, and some person or persons are able to tune in on that ray, or be tuned in on that ray. The trips that, and the name here is bleeped out, took to Palomar may be a coincidence, but with all of these other things, it's interesting to me. And the name that's bleeped out is no doubt Anne Parton. George Ellery Hill was an eccentric solar astronomer, born in 1868, who transformed a Pasadena trade college through Polytechnic Institute into one of the greatest scientific universities in U.S. history, Caltech. Hell loved Pasadena because of its proximity to Mount Wilson, a 5,712-foot peak in the San Gabriel mountain range. He saw the mountain as a portal to the universe and wanted to build a telescope there to study the physical properties of the sun. In pursuit of these goals, he even went so far as to convince the Carnegie Foundation in Washington, D.C., to help him build the world's largest telescope on the summit of Mount Wilson. Later in his career, in 1928, George Hill managed to do it again and convinced the Rockefeller Foundation to launch a 20-year construction project of what would become the world's largest telescope for nearly five decades. The television show The X-Files makes mention of him 
in regard to the Palomar Observatory. Fox Mulder explains in Season 2, Episode 1, Little Green Men, that from 1948 until recently, it was the largest telescope in the world. This idea was presented while Hale was playing billiards, and an elf climbed in his window and told him to get money from the Rockefeller Foundation for a telescope. Though this sounds outlandish, it was widely rumored that Hale's ideas and theories were communicated to him by an elf that visited him regularly throughout his life, giving him advice and directing him in his research and theories. Hale also suffered from various neurological and psychological problems, including insomnia, depression, and possibly schizophrenia. Hale would often take time off from his research to spend a few months at a sanatorium in Maine. Eventually, his growing psychological issues forced him to resign as director of Mount Wilson, and he later died at a sanitarium in Pasadena in 1938. If Hale's elf isn't strange enough, it gets even weirder. There's a 1947 comic that depicts Saturn worshipping a cultist using the Palomar Observatory for a ritual. That's right, 1947, the same year that UFOs appeared on the scene. Did Downard see this comic in one of the pulp magazines at the time? I think he must have, or at least encountered someone familiar with its publication. The comic features a panel showing the cultists of the congregation shouting, Om Om Rahalan. The actual text appearing in the comic, it turns out, comes from a real occult ritual performed by the Fraternitas Saturni, or Brotherhood of Saturn, a German magical order founded in 1926 by Eugene Grosch, a.k.a. Gregor A. Gregorius. The Brotherhood of Saturn is one of the oldest occult lodges in Germany and laid the foundation for what would eventually become the modern New Age movement. The text in the comic is taken from a sex magic ritual, to enable contact with higher non-human intelligences. Was Downard aware of the Brotherhood of Saturn? Was one of their lodges active at the Palomar Observatory? One had to ask these questions, considering the concentration of so many strange things on that mountain. passage in an article titled Jack Parsons, The Magical Scientist and His Circle, which was published in the excluded middle number six, states, Parsons developed strong revolutionary tendencies, and when he encountered Crowley's writings, which he first did through Wilfred T. Smith, he was instantly alive to the significance of Telema. He joined Smith's Agape Lodge and, at the same time, became a probationer. Smith was a member of Freighter Akkad's OTO Lodge in Vancouver. He met Crowley there in 1915. Smith moved to California in 1930. He immediately founded the Agape Lodge in Pasadena. Frederick Codd kept the Vancouver Lodge open during this period under a different name. It would later close. In Alchemical Conspiracy and the Death of the West, Michael Hoffman writes of Parsons. Hoffman tells us that the Order Templi Orientis, the OTO, had a temple on nearby Mount Palomar. The local Indians regarded the mountain as holy. Hoffman says, the OTO believed that Palomar was the sexual chakra of the earth. Parsons commuted regularly between Palomar and Pasadena. The Mount Palomar Observatory opened in 1949. Smith probably consecrated his temple on Palomar soon after his move to California in 1930, before the observatory was planned. 
It also turns out that Grimstead references the Palomar OTO himself in his book Weird America. Quote, Devil's Gate Reservoir in northwest Pasadena. Historically, certain groups associated with the black arts have shown considerable interest in this area. Sometime after 1915, a chapter of the OTO, a secret society headed by the famous Aleister Crowley, was organized in Pasadena. Its address was a house at 1003 South Orange Grove Avenue. The founder of this Agape Lodge of the OTO was one Wilfred T. Smith, Crowley's man in Vancouver, Canada. As part of his activities in California, Smith also traveled down the coast and erected a stone temple in the then remote woods at Palomar Mountain in San Diego County, where the California Institute of Technology, Pasadena, many years later, built the famous Astrophysical Observatory. For the first five years of the UFO era, which began in 1947 when private pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing flying saucers, UFOs were only objects or lights in the sky, seen at a distance. But then George Adamski, a famous self-proclaimed ufology professor, took several iconic UFO photos in the shadow of the Palomar Observatory in the early 1950s that define what a UFO looks like in the popular consciousness. At the base of the mountain where Palomar Observatory sits, Adamski began holding his own lectures about aliens and his personal encounters with otherworldly beings he called the Space Brothers. The big thing, I think, with Adamski that is so significant and, you know, just really with uh, most of the the early UFO people and especially the contactees was his involvement in sort of the proto, you know, California New Age movement, which was largely centered around theosophical circles and so forth. You know, just sort of that whole legacy in the Western states, uh, because, I mean, you know, there were, when you look at the early UFO movement, I mean, a lot of the major centers were all, you know, kind of based in the American West. I mean, Arizona, I know, was another one. Gosh, I think it was around Tucson or something like that. That was uh, when Wilhelm Reich and a lot of these other characters that ended up in that region in the early 50s. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting situation because, I mean, I think a lot of it uh, ultimately goes back uh, to Mormonism, you know, which is essentially an ancient astronaut religion if you really want to get down to it. Uh, I mean, it's littered with references to Freemasonry. Uh, you know, I mean, it kind of, I mean, almost updates the sort of Gnostic astronosis concept, if you will. It's, you know, really fascinating, I suppose, in that concept. But anyway, so Mormonism migrates out to the West. It sets up its base in Salt Lake City. Uh, and then it, you know, effectively raises the Mormon uh, militia, which then goes across uh, much of the west, the rest of the Western states, and conquers them, conquers them on behalf of uh, the Union, uh, so that they are later brought in. This particular legacy for the American West has resulted in some very strange developments. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I mean, a lot of, I think, the kind of militia and paramilitary culture, I mean, kind of comes out of that, you know, Mormon pioneer militia, you know, legacy of all of this. I mean, you, you know, kind of go up to the modern day and look at things like the Bundy standoff. I mean, Cleveland Bundy was a Mormon, as is uh, most of his family and quite a few of the individuals who were there. So, you know, there is uh, that modern legacy and also, with, uh, you know, the Oath Keepers and a lot of that type of stuff. <clears throat> James Caminacci's actually done some great work on that in his examination of the Oath Keepers. But on the other hand, you also had this sort of 
strange occult legacy, I think, that came out of the spread of Mormonism in the Western states. Uh, when you look at theosophy, uh, you know, where it took root, I mean, almost exclusively in the United States outside of, you know, I think New York and a few of those rarefied areas was in the American West. Uh, that kind of laid the foundation, I mean, in some ways also for the beats and then later, I mean, the hippie movement, the new age, and I mean, a lot of this other stuff. So, yeah, you know, you had this sort of fascinating milieu that Anamnensky and a lot of these later figures were a part of. And I mean, I think that's a component of uh, the UFO mythos and some of the later developments, which I suppose we'll get into with George Hunt Williamson and so forth, that I don't think a lot of people like really look at. You know, it's obviously, I think, to some extent debatable if, I mean, it, uh, the UFO thing could have really caught on in a lot of other parts of the country outside of the American West. It just had the the perfect legacy for something like that to really spark the imagination. With all that in mind, Adminensky was steeped in all of this uh, when he allegedly had his experience. And I mean, this was true of, uh, I mean, I think almost all of the other major early contactees. I mean, certainly uh, the individual who was uh, with him when he met Ortheon or whatever the heck the uh, blonde-haired Venetian's name uh, was. That would be George Hunt Williamson. Uh, but you also see this with other people like, uh, was it James Molesley and all these other characters? I mean, they all had uh, a keen interest in the occult. And, you know, frequently um, they used these methods in allegedly contacting the Space Brothers. I mean, I think was George Hunt Williamson who used a Ouija board or something like that before he later uh, kind of developed an early version of what the ghost hunters now do with uh, what the radio transmissions and all that kind of stuff. Spirit boxes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, you know, this whole thing was just very much uh, an outgrowth, I think, of this esoteric current that had been you know, present in the American West for a long time. And that's where, you know, to a lot of people, it, it seems baffling that, you know, you would later have this connection, you know, between George Hunt Williamson and uh, William Dudley Paley, who was um, the founder of the Silver Shirts, which was the largest American uh, paramilitary fascist movement uh, in the United States uh, during the 1930s. It was uh, consciously an effort to uh, you know, create an American brown shirt movement. Before William Dudley Pelley had uh, embraced Nazism, uh, he was quite well known in uh, the same sort of proto-New Age circles that I've just been describing. Uh, he had first risen to national prominence uh, in the late 1920s when he had written this track, Seven Minutes and Eternity, about his out-of-body experience. It was uh, one of the first major accounts of an OBE, and it was very popular uh, during the late 1920s. So he went into all of that, and then uh, he started to incorporate theosophy into some of uh, his later musings and sort of developed a full-blown cosmology. There were some interesting things, uh, you know, he had uh, predicted, what was it, he had predicted a huge changing event for the United States that would occur, what was it, on September 16th, 2001, so it was really close, it was. Uh, he also invoked uh, the serious tradition, which he copped from Alice Bailey. Uh, she was the originator. Of course, she was an arch-theosophist as well. There's a lot of speculation about her. She was uh, the big figure behind Lucius Trust. She had written quite a bit of rambling tracks about uh, Sirius and all of the later kind of cosmic connections they would take on. Bailey, though, was a rather awful writer, so not very many people read her work. But uh, Paley uh, had actually made some uh, 
coins uh, early in his life as a Hollywood screenwriter. So he was a bit more talented and was able to sort of spread this notion around as well. So he was involved in a lot of these new age circles uh, in Hollywood and so forth before he went full-blown fascist in the uh, early 1930s, which actually I think was driven by the fact that um, what he saw Hitler as some kind of modern avatar of... Um, Gosh, I can't remember what it was now, but um, yeah, his embrace of Nazism was also a result of uh, his bizarre belief system. So this stuff wasn't mutually exclusive to Paley, nor was it, you know, I think later to George Hunt Williamson, who eventually became involved in the Sovereign Order of St. John, which also had all of these bizarre ties to uh, these militia networks and um, also... Mormonism. I actually have letters in my possession of uh, one of actually the top uh, officials from the LDS. What was it? Uh, Ezra Taft Benson, uh, who is in fact a member of the Story Taft family of uh, Ohio and uh, many other places, uh, corresponding with members of the Order of St. John, uh, discussing an alliance between Mormonism and um, a particular branch of the far right back in uh, the early 1960s. So that's uh, interesting in light of some of the later latter events that I had described. So, yeah, you have just this, you know, bizarre milieu that I think produced, you know, a lot of these currents, and, you know, we're still seeing it today. I mean, obviously, you know, as uh, somebody who's involved in a lot of this sort of UFO and uh, para-weird, you know, circles, I mean, you know, you've obviously seen probably a lot of the Q stuff start to creep in. You know, you see this sort of bizarre nexus kind of personified by somebody like Lisa Clapier, ex-Mormon who had become a devotee of uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard. She of the Aquarian Conspiracy. Uh, Mar Barbara Marks Hubbard, I think, was the person who had sponsored Lisa Clapier after she had gotten released from prison. And Lisa went into Occupy LA, I think, around 2011, 2012, thereabouts. You know, went through the whole 2012 spiel and uh, was a Bernie Sanders supporter, I think, of 2016, and then went full on Q-tard uh, around 2017, 2018. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's always been this sort of strange nexus and I think you know a lot of it uh, ultimately kind of derives from that you know just curious legacy of the American West and uh, so much of the strange belief systems that have grown out of there and um, often with this you know kind of strange legacy of paramilitarism that's uh, been closely linked to it. In the mid-1940s, Adamski and his followers developed Palomar Gardens as a communal home for themselves, a base for their spiritual mission, and a source of income. Palomar Observatory drew lots of tourists from all over the world. It's also worth mentioning that one of Adamski's devotees that came to Palomar Gardens was none other than George Hunt Williamson, himself a master manipulator and historical con man. After reading William Dudley Paley's book, Star Guests, Williamson traveled to Asheville, North Carolina, and worked for Paley's Hitler-loving fascist cult, the Silver Shirts. After hearing about the flying saucer-based religious cult of George Adamski, Williamson and his wife headed out west to become regular visitors to Adamski's commune at Palomar Gardens. They witnessed Adamski telepathically channeling and tape-recording messages from the friendly Space Brothers who inhabited every solar planet. But Adamski and Williamson's relationship was short-lived and after a falling out, Williamson formed his own contactee cult and began communing with alien intelligences himself. Is it mere coincidence that George Hill, Adamski, and Williamson were space enthusiasts visited by strange beings 
whose lives were directed toward Palomar Mountain? Could there be something of significance at the Palomar Observatory drawing people there? Was Downard aware of the UFO connection at the time he visited Mount Palomar and drove the Highway of the Stars? Did he eat at Palomar Gardens, possibly even speaking with a Damsky or Williamson? It's interesting to ponder. No doubt by the mid-1970s, when the Sirius Rising tapes were recorded by Grimstead, Downard must have been aware of these connections, especially between Adamski, UFO cults, and the Palomar Observatory. One also has to consider that Grimstead was working in the Pasadena, Escondido, and San Diego area as a newspaper reporter in the mid-1960s, and most certainly was aware of the history of the Palomar Observatory and its association with UFO cults. I personally believe, listening to the Sirius Rising tapes, that Downard is referencing Adamski, Williamson, and others, including Hill, when he mentions rays of Saturn coming down through the telescope into the observatory for use in occult rituals. I recently had the opportunity to discuss the history and beginnings of the UFO movement with none other than Alan Greenfield, author, ufologist, and occultist. He's a past member of the Society for Psychical Research and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and has twice been the recipient of the Ufologist of the Year Award of the National UFO Conference. He's probably most well-known for his book, Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots, and appeared in the second season of Hellier. Alan and I discussed his upcoming book, Saucers and Saucers, about the first generation of UFO researchers, and also talked about the specter of anti-Semitism and racism that pervades George Adamski. Let me tell you, it doesn't start in the 80s or the 70s. It starts in the 1930s when fascism was very fashionable in Europe. My first source was my friend Jim Mosley, whose father was general of the U.S. Army, but also a well-known fascist and anti-Semite uh, associated with Gerald L. K. Smith, who was in, back in the day when he was publishing The Cross and The Flag. So Mosley said, you know, Adamski is or was, depending on the time frame, a notorious anti-Semite. Uh, you know, his witness, uh, uh, George Hunt Williamson, was affiliated with the IM movement, which grew out of the uh, the neo-Nazi group of the 1930s, the uh, Silver Shirts, which, by the way, my father and the local rabbi in Augusta, Georgia, uh, infiltrated, and uh, uh, yeah, they were they were not just Klansmen; they were Nazis. And uh, I mean, the Klan is Nazi-ish enough, but the, the, this was a time when Nazism was one of the prevailing philosophies in certain European capitals. And they were, William Dudley Pelly was the head. They put him in jail when the war broke out here because uh, like the German-American Bund, which you know had more reason to exist, they were Germans. These were just your average Americans who liked wearing silver shirts and those ridiculous riding pants and the jackboots and marching around and talking about that international Jewish conspiracy of which I am the leader. But that's not important. What is important is that there is a direct lineal thing in both 
ufology and in occultism and if you like in cryptozoology which i think you know all of these things have common points which i which has been my argument i don't know how linear it is but i do know that one of the branches of uh quote irregular freemasonry which is a whole different you know discussion itself grew out of the p2 society a uh, italian fascist group that was actually suppressed in the i guess the 1970s i mean there's a direct lineal connection there uh it doesn't mean that everybody in that is a fascist it does mean that their origins are fascist and the same thing that people that have hooked into the uh the revised version of the real society the real society is interesting enough on its own merits but the real society that i learned about in the 1960s had it didn't have any women in it let alone these uh pinup type dolls with the long hair that it turns out some neo nazi group in germany you know they have to be neo there because swastikas are uh, officially forbidden but these were you know nazi skinheads and nazi intellectuals the more dangerous variety that version of the real society seems to have become the accepted version if you go back to non nazis who fled germany like hermann oberth they knew about the real society and said The Nazis are really a silly bunch of people who believe that stuff from a fictional novel, you know, real the power of the coming race is actually non-fiction. Uh, that was the attitude of people who were uh shall we say human in Nazi Germany and yet this revised version which I don't think is older than the 1970s at the oldest comes out of germany has been a, 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 a adopted in this country by a lot of conspiracy theorists not knowing or maybe some know that it is a totally nazi theory it's a come on you know the uh the original version uh, had a bit to do with the founding of the nazi party right in the wake of World War 1 but I don't think that you know most of the members and again you're talking about small potatoes you're talking about you know 50 people or something I don't think that most of them were Nazis they were mostly people that were interested in the esoteric the thing is uh, in those days Nazism was a fringe uh, element anything that was fringe they'd go there so you meet people who are alienated fringe people in all kinds of contexts so UFO clubs, uh societies, uh occult groups and uh even podcasters. I, I know this is shocking and I I I I hesitate to say this to such anti-fascists as the wonderful people at Penny Royal. Blug, 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 blug. But it's it's out there and some of these tropes tend to become in fringe circles mainstream in the sense that it becomes an accepted fact and the origin isn't known and i don't think that's confined to the to the youngest explorers of this but i think they are more subject to it because they don't have jim mosley to say uh, adamski he was an anti-semite that's you know coming from the horse's mouth because in jim's case he was 
very anti-fascist because I think he grew up around a rabid fascist, his dad, a famous, notorious fascist. They may have even been involved in the founding of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was an interesting uh, experience. Tell me about Saucers and Saucers that's coming up. What's it? Uh... Yeah, that, there's a, a long history of various portions of that. There are no books about ufology, let alone classic ufology. And I've always maintained, even when I uh, would countenance the uh, extraterrestrial quote, hypothesis, unquote. Uh, actually, speculation would be a better and more honest way of putting it. But um, I have always thought that ufology itself should be studied by some sociologists because it's a very, very interesting thing. I was uh, for a good many years involved in science fiction fandom, and I've been, in, I don't know, in a lot of clubby circumstances, not including uh, biker gangs. So I have been keeping memos on people in ufology, and it occurred to me the most fascinating people that I've known are first-gen and second-gen ufologists. First-gen would be Jim Bosley, Gray Barker, Major Kehoe, uh, but Saucers and Saucers talks about a crucial period in the history of ufology, and it's based on memos that I wrote at the time. So it's very, very fashionable in terms of the, its accuracy for that period of time. I could have, you know, updated the notes, but I wanted them to, to speak in the jargon of that period. At the same time, a little editing so that it's accessible to people now who are totally clueless. They think that uh, ufology was invented by uh, John Keel and uh, Jacques Vallée. They were newcomers, uh, even in my generation, and I'm second gen. I mean, second gen people are, well, it's a fading line, but there are quite a few of us still around, and we're still involved, which is quite interesting. I mean, there are people who've dropped along the way, but the people that I talk about in the book, uh, circa the 1960, late 60s, 70s, and 80s, some of them are your fellow podcasters like uh, Gene Steinberg. Uh, the late uh, Tim Beckley had a really interesting podcast. Tim was my oldest friend. Gene and Tim and I went back to 1960, 61, somewhere in there. Uh, Rick Hilberg is, is active, and I think he's a MUFON historian now. MUFON has broadened out a bit, same theories, but has broadened out a bit. But Rick is still active, and he, uh, I understand, I haven't seen it, wrote an introduction to this coming edition of Saucers and Saucers, and also provided a bunch of photos from, from those periods. And if you come away from reading that book with a sense of what people who really cared about what this whole mystery was all about, and also enjoyed themselves and had a sense of humor. It, when Saucers and Saucers becomes available, it's like the only book that's really about ufology in its formative period. Not like its prequel, which would be the 1930s, 1940s crypto-fascist New Age movement, but like the people who 
were the movers and shakers in ufology from the 19, late, mid-1950s up until, let's say, the end of the 20th century. That's, I'm no longer alone. There are a lot of younger people who say, hey, this doesn't seem to be something from Mars or Alpha Centauri. It seems to be something from down the block. Like the Hellier folks. They know, they walk into a cave, and the god Pan, hi, don't try this at home. So a lot of stuff happened around Mount Palomar. So it isn't necessary, necessarily that Mount Palomar as such is the, the focal point, as that area may be a portal to something else, or the, alternatively, Palomar was built there, as uh, has been pointed out about ley lines. We were talking about many uh, religious structures going back to paleo-pagan times have been built at the juncture of ley lines. And that's because of, I don't know, the, the terms like telluric power. I don't have no idea what telluric power means, but it sounds really, it's the telluric power under Arabia Mountain that gives me the power to pass on the empowerments given to me by blah, 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 blah. Am I being clear about this? So, you know, all of this stuff is there, and that fascist link is there. In the pursuit of making sense of the Penny Royal mystery, and for that matter, any mystery or anomaly in the paranormal, Fordian, or conspiracy communities, it's good to keep an eye out for the tricksters. The motif of Pan as trickster in this mystery feels particularly significant in light of all of the little nods and winks, the details that cause you to look over your shoulder to see if anyone is watching you. Tricksters and the paranoia that they bring with them, they seem to be an ever-present part of the phenomena. There's a rich history of hoaxing among researchers in the UFO movement. Are the strange documents we receive from Peter similarly part of some hoax? Were Greg and Dana and the crew of Hellier hoaxed by the Amy witness or by whoever was purporting to be Terry Rist? But what would be the reasoning behind orchestrating a series of coincidences and synchronicities just to cause us all to tell these stories? really starts you know all the fucking underground uh, mythos is connected with the very first say the first ufo case in the modern era of ufos was kenneth arnold right which was yeah. june 24th 1947 you can check it on wikipedia though but i think that's the right date that whole case in a sense, was connected with Richard Shaver and the whole uh, Shaver mysteries, which had to do with probably a, you know, Shaver was a uh, dude who became kind of a popular phenomenon through Amazing Stories magazine. 
and the publisher Ray Palmer, you know, that started in like uh, the late 1930s or so. You know, at that time, prior to Shaver, uh, Amazing Stories had been a pretty straight science fiction magazine. Then they brought in these Richard Shaver stories, which were basically Shaver claiming that as when he was working in a as a welder in like Pennsylvania, he started picking up voices over his welding equipment, the welding coil. Uh, initially, he was hearing the voices of his co-workers or the thoughts of his co-workers, and then he went uh, as this evolved, he began to think he was hearing the voices of these underground earth dwellers named the Giros. I'm sure you're, you might be familiar with this whole history. And so these stories became a phenomenon, you know. Ray Palmer published amazing stories, claimed that these were actually true stories. This was a true history. He called them racial memories, which is kind of an odd way of uh, phrasing it. But, it, you know, it was more than science fiction. This this was actually factual. The stories got more and more bizarre. It was like part of, part of the deal was they were screwing with humans above ground, these Duros. They used ray machines to uh, manipulate them, sending, Palmer called it tampering with the minds of humans above ground. And Shaver himself said, you know, that he, he was being tampered with. I mean, it's a classic example of uh, like schizophrenic schizophrenia and you know these stories were about humans being abducted taking underground into the dero's lair and even there's bizarre sexual stories that there was sexual stimulation devices they were using on women and they were uh, kind of creating human alien hybrids underground or you know weird human uh, hybrids mixed with animals or whatever kind of a bizarre series of bizarre stories that became the shaver <laughs> mysteries and uh, how this connected with the early days of ufos was that uh, ray palmer he published uh, amazing stories and promoted the career of uh, richard shaver he also uh, after the you know when kenneth arnold reported his sightings of uh, seeing some uh, saucers over Mount Rainier back, you know, 19, that date, Jan, June 24th, 1947, he recruited Kenneth Arnold uh, to basically uh, publish his story of seeing those saucers, you know, in uh, the amazing stories and other magazines that uh, Palmer was publishing. But he also uh, kind of uh, recruited... Uh, Kenneth Arnold to be a uh, probably the very first UFO researcher in the modern age of UFOs uh, to go check out what uh, later became known as the uh, Maury Island UFO affair. So that you know that brings brings me back to where we're uh, talking about how. Uh, this connection between Ray Palmer and uh, Kenneth Arnold and Richard Shaver and how it connects with the Maury Island affair, as they call it, and uh, Fred Crisman, who was 
really, you know, the center or the main person uh, reporting and promoting the uh, Maury the Island affair, which happened, according to Chrisman, three days before Kenneth Arnold's sighting. I think there was a design behind that. I think Maury Island was a hoax, and it was partly Chrisman and his friend uh, Harold Dahl trying to promote this story to become, who knows, rich, UFO famous, or whatever. A year before, uh, you know, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, Fred Chrisman, you know, during the height of the whole Richard Shaver, Shaver Mysteries mania, Fred Chrisman wrote in claiming that uh, during World War II, he had been a fire fighter pilot. He'd been shot down in Burma, and he and one of his uh, fellow soldiers came across uh, a Duro uh, cavern where they ended up having a uh, battle with a firefight with Duros. And this is a common theme you'll see when we get to the Dulce uh, base story about this uh, firefight with underground creatures, you know, in these uh, caverns or underground bases or whatever. And so this is really the first uh, time that uh, Chrisman appeared in you know this alternative uh, reality, <laughs> alternative literature, science fiction literature, morphing into you know these kind of hoax stories or schizophrenic stories of Richard Shavers, where he was, you know, he claimed that he had this encounter and battled battle with the Duros, and so you know that was. Uh, First, we hear of uh, Fred Crisman in popular uh, culture. The tale of Paul Benowitz transformed from a story about beings and strange phenomena in the sky to a story about underground bases and subterranean beings. But all the while, he was being led down these roads of inquiry and belief by figures like Richard Doty, who knew that the information he was feeding Benowitz was false and manufactured simply to lead Benowitz away from observations regarding actual Air Force testing of secret craft and technology. You know, the Dulce papers with the Tom Castello story emerged in 1988. You know, uh, from my research, it appears they were based on Benowitz, and in 1979 or 80, Benowitz. Because of this disinformation campaign, you've heard the name Richard uh, Doty with the uh, AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, was running a counterintelligence disinformation campaign on uh, Benowitz because Benowitz was picking up on stuff going on at Kirtland Air Force Base that really secret programs going on. Benowitz, you know, was thinking they were alien UFOs and other things going on there. And uh, Doty encouraged uh, this thinking with Benowitz. And so Benowitz started this campaign where he was exposing what he thought were uh, an alien invasion and uh, started sending like letters to different politicians, uh, U.S. senators that were representing New Mexico, even sent letter to uh, Ronald Reagan, who was president at that time, alerting uh, 
uh, them of the salient menace, and in uh, and it gets it gets really bizarre. Gets into this whole thing about this computer that Benowitz was given by Alan Hynek of all people, who was uh, you know involved uh, in uh, Project Blue Book and was working during this period as a contractor for the Air Force. According to historian Greg Bishop's uh, Project Beta, Hynek. Uh, admitted to UFO researcher Bill Moore that he had given this computer to uh, Benowitz uh, so Benowitz could communicate to the aliens uh, through this computer and was embedded with a certain software that would allow him to do that. I mean, some cr uh, crazy shit here, but this was all kind of part of this uh, disinformation campaign to one, find out what exactly Benowitz knew about some of the secret programs going on at Kirtland. It was more than testing of like uh, secret craft, stealth aircraft at the time, but also uh, different like laser communications programs with satellites, all of this stuff. Benowitz lived on the outskirts of Kirtland base and he was a physicist and he also did government contracts for the uh, for the Air Force so he was he, he had turned his attention to all of this stuff and so once again through his his own observations and perhaps his own paranoia and also with the uh, people with the Air Force like Doty running this uh, disinformation campaign. He was sending these uh, letters out to uh, different politicians. In one of the early letters, it states that, and this, you know, this might have been disinformation <laughs> he got through his computer, but uh, Benowitz claimed that he had information that says there had been like a, uh, something happened in an underground base and, uh, could either been at Kirtland or Dulce, but that 66 workers had had to abandon the base. And also, he claimed that he was developing a space gun at this time that could uh, annihilate the aliens. So that was an early letter that uh, Benowitz uh, sent out, like in 79 or 80, and it kind of corresponds to the whole Thomas Castello Dulce papers thing where you know about the 66 workers who died at uh, Dulce base and that how Thomas Castello had this flash gun as he called it I think this was all kind of lifted from Benowitz rantings and ravings and a decade later it was part of this mythos that became the whole Dulce based story that was distributed in this uh, thing called the Dulce Papers that was uh, you know, distributed by John Lear and Tal Levesque was involved in that as well who I write about in the book As Adam Go Ratley uncovers in his book Saucer, Spooks, and Kooks it appears the story of the underground Dulce base originates with the Benowitz Affair and is part of an even older motif in the UFO community. But the stories of underground bases are nothing new. And if you believe Chuck Zukowski, there's a clustering of underground bases along the 37th parallel, which cuts directly through Somerset. Stretching from the Chesapeake Bay to Santa Cruz, California, the 37th parallel is often called 
the UFO highway, this line on the map is littered with cattle mutilations, UFO sightings, reports of underground military bases, and ancient native and sacred sites. Fort Knox, Mammoth Cave, Hopkinsville, Somerset, and Elkhorn City all line up on the 37th parallel. I'd never even considered the reality of things lurking beneath our feet before investigating the Penny Royal mystery. I knew the Richard Shaver stories, but always regarded them as a hoax masterminded by Ray Palmer. But after the release of season two of Penny Royal, numerous remote viewers, psychics, and local witnesses began to contact us about the tunnels underneath Kentucky and the secret military base beneath Pulaski County. Supposedly, there were roads beneath Kentucky that connected this secret military base to dozens of others across the U.S. Underground roads and underground tunnels, some with a spiritual dimension. Deeper and deeper into the occult history of the United States transportation system. Occulted roads in the sky overhead and occulted roads beneath our feet. As above, so below. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit PennyRoyalPodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging. Stop the thing you realize just what it means. 
Yeah.